If I could control the guidelines and I say, I'm the king of the world right now, tomorrow every lipid guideline will say, doctors, you must get ApoB to gold in every person under your care. Citizens, make sure your doctors get ApoB to control. The overwhelming majority of practicing clinicians in the world have no clue what ApoB is. They don't know what the metrics are for it. They don't know what the levels are for it. They wouldn't know how to treat it. Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Thomas Dayspring for part two of our lipid series. We start off by closing some loose ends on a few topics we discussed in part one, and then we dive into assessing our risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease with a focus on the lipid tests that best predict our risk. Tom explains very clearly what to pay attention to on your blood test, two major tests that are good to get at least yearly, and one test that is a once in a lifetime genetic test. As a reminder for the visually inclined, be sure to check this episode out on the Proof YouTube channel, where we have added illustrations throughout the conversation to help explain some of the concepts. And don't forget to register for the zero cost lipid series summary PDF at theproof.com forward slash lipid series. That's theproof.com forward slash lipid series. This will contain the key learnings from the three parts of the series. With that, please enjoy part two of the Lipid series with Dr. Thomas Dayspring. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. 
two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Tom, before we we delve into, I guess, the focus of this episode, which is risk assessment. Um, you know, last episode we spoke about the lipid transport system, how our body moves fats and cholesterol, and how this can go wrong, and and how we can end up with cholesterol building up in the the artery wall. I wanted to kind of tie off on on a few loose ends from from that part of the conversation before we move into the risk assessment side of things and the first thing that i i wanted to ask you about comes back to the process of atherogenesis and you walked us through the mechanism and um, i think it was really beautifully explained and you cleared up a number of things for me and and two of the big things that you cleared up for me were that these ApoB-containing lipoproteins can move through the endothelium into the artery wall, even in the absence of damage to the endothelium. And that damage can exacerbate it and make it worse, but it certainly can happen without damage. And the, the second thing that you cleared up for me is that if oxidation occurs, it's occurring inside the artery wall, not in, not in plasma. Um, and both damage to the endothelium and oxidation are often two things that people who are perhaps denying uh, the role of LDL in atherosclerosis will point to, and they'll use those as as evidence that you know high high LDL or ApoB containing lipoproteins only matters in, in a certain context. And I think you cleared that up really nicely, but I forgot to ask you about one, one more thing that I see people bring up and that's glycocalyx. And I think this might feed into, I guess, the quality of the endothelium, but there is this idea out there that I've seen that um, this glycocalyx, which uh, to my uh, understanding sort of sits on the inside of the endothelium um, on the, uh, where the plasma is and the idea is that if this is intact it acts as a bit of a barrier to stop these apob containing lipoproteins getting through the endothelium is there is there evidence that this the integrity of glycocalyx plays an important role in the development of atherosclerosis or inhibiting it no as you said first of all it's exterior to the endothelium it's uh, plasma sort of sitting on top of the endothelium. It's not on the inside of the endothelium. It's another layer ill-defined of glycoproteins that uh, people would say, hey, that's a bit of a barrier for anything to pass through. I think it was developed uh, teleologically to keep 
uh, really potent bacteria and parasites out of artery walls or so. So it may have a purpose in that. And it's one of these more theoretical things. It's nice. It sounds good. But all right, give me the proof that that matters in atherogenesis where uh, they claiming that, oh, ApoB particles can't pass through the glycocalyx. I don't know what they're complaining. I think the people who rant and rave about this just don't want to believe the ApoB story. So they have to have to come up with other reasons to, oh, it gets trapped there. So it's never making it into the artery wall. But when we have endless studies that show ApoB in a straight line, concentration and coronary events is uh, so related. So I don't know what the glycocalyx does. It certainly never seemed to have been looked at or mentioned in any clinical trial if this was so important or people thought it would. Uh, perhaps because we have no way of measuring it that uh, uh, we, we couldn't even test the hypothesis or so. So I don't know. I think it's a false flag and uh, uh, doesn't make me stop respecting ApoB any more than anyone should because the evidence is so humongous with that. So I don't know what it means. I think it's just a, a flag. The second thing that I wanted to get your thoughts on was various observational studies that show LDL or low LDL cholesterol is associated with higher mortality. This is, again, something that I see LDL cholesterol sort of denialist point to. Is there any validity to the idea that low LDL cholesterol uh, would shorten your life? No, let's understand there are pathological diseases where somebody might have a very low LDL cholesterol, and often there are diseases that kill people. Cancer is highest on that list, malnutrition, things like that. So if you're studying a billion people, you'll see a few that have low LDL cholesterol, and boy, their mortality was up. But what is the disease that killed them? It's not lack of circulating cholesterol in the blood, because how many times do we have to say it? The amount of cholesterol circulating in your blood, that's one pool of the body's cholesterol. And that pool of cholesterol has no relationship whatsoever to the pool of cholesterol that are in our cells, the pool of cholesterol that is in our brains. So uh, it's one of those like observational things uh, that might be shown and there's probably other diseases going on. We certainly know in all the trials we have where we use pharmacologic agents to blow away ApoB and LDL cholesterol to levels as low as 10 or 20 milligrams per deciliter, there has been no adversity in those trials. So I suspect the low LDLC that might be associated with some mortality is it's in the person with some other ugly disease. Okay. There was... One other loose end I wanted to tie off on, which I think will actually be helpful as we move into risk assessment. We spoke a lot about ApoB-containing lipoproteins, uh, the chylomicrons that come from the small intestine, and then the VLDL, IDL, and LDLs that come from the liver. Um, and the majority uh, of the, the ApoB-containing lipoproteins that are ending up in the artery wall being the low-density lipoproteins. There's one other ApoB-containing lipoprotein that we didn't get to, and that was LP little a. So perhaps we could start here with what LP little a is and why over recent years this has been getting more attention. 
Yes, we certainly have to speak about this because one out of four, one out of five people have elevated LP middle A. It's not like some rare lipid disorder that you really don't have to know anything about. So uh, lipoprotein little a is a lipoprotein particle that has two moieties. One is it's an LDL particle. If I just looked at that part of the LP little a particle, it's a particle that has the size and density and buoyancy of an LDL particle. It's got a single molecule of apolipoprotein B on it. Its surface coat is free cholesterol and phospholipids, and its core is mostly cholesterol ester with some degree of triglycerides. Now, that's an LDL particle. We can measure that LDL particle counts using certain technologies. We estimate it by looking at LDL cholesterol. Uh, since 90% of our ApoB particles are LDLs, ApoB is basically an LDL particle concentration. But if you pick the wrong parents, because lipoprotein little a is a genetically produced, it's an inherited disease, you inherit the genes either from mom or from dad or from both that lets your liver produce a different type of apolipoprotein, which has been given the name small case A, little a. The guy who discovered it thought he discovered a new antigen, so he labeled it as little a. That's where the name comes from. So it turns out it's another apoprotein, and it has a high affinity to bind to the ApoB on the LDL particle. It's produced in the liver. So are many of your LDLs. So if an L a liver a parasite has produced an LDL particle, which it's getting ready to secrete into plasma, but your liver has also produced this accessory apolipoprotein, apolittle A, it can bind to some of those LDL particles. So when that particle leaves the liver, it's an LDL to which is attached an a second apolipoprotein called apoprotein little a. The whole particle, LDL plus apolittle a, is called an LP little a particle. And here's the problem. All LDL particles, when they exceed a certain concentration, are have the ability to crash your artery wall. But this apolittle a that attaches to the LDL particle has several potentially highly atherogenic properties. Early in its discovery, it was thought it was a prothrombotic antifibrinolytic protein, so it would worsen arterial coagulation if this part, if it went in the artery wall, clots would be developing, obviously not good if you're trying to prevent atherosclerosis. Now it's pretty much recognized that that may be true. There may be some uh, discoagulation uh, properties related to apoprotein little a, but probably its most toxicity is due to the fact now, this apoprotein little a, and I'm going to definitely send you a nice diagram of it because you really have to see what this thing looks like. The ApoA that is attached to the ApoB, it looks like a bunch of curly cues. There's a bunch of loops. That's, the name of those loops comes from a German uh, pastry. They're Kringles. So LP little a has an X number of these Kringle loops. And there are a couple of specific Kringles on the Apo little a that have a, and they're lysine enriched. They have a tremendous affinity to bind to oxidized lipid moieties that mostly oxidize phospholipids, but oxidize sterols. Anything oxidized will bind to it. People may not know, oxidized means you're on fire. So if you have an oxidized lipid, it's a particularly dangerous type of lipid, and they're quite cellular toxic. 
So if an LP little a particle is floating around your plasma and it's adhering to these oxidized uh, phospholipids that are floating around or the phospholipids on the surface of the particle get oxidized by reactive oxygen species, they're going you got a little dump truck carrying oxidized lipid moieties. If that dump truck crashes your artery wall, it's a dump truck carrying a potentially prothrombotic protein, and it's dumping all these oxidized sterols or phospholipids in your artery wall. So that explains the danger to this. And you want to know if you have it. So right now, the most astute guidelines, starting with the European and even the NLA now is advising, this should be a one-time test in everybody's life. You either have it or you don't. If you test it yourself when you're three years old and you have no serious concentration of LP little a, you don't have to check it when you're 50 years old because you didn't get a new genome over you know, those 50 years. Uh, likewise, though, if you check it and it's up, you know, oh, my God, you've just jumped up into a higher cardiovascular risk category. And I'm going to watch you very closely uh, and take care of treatable atherosclerotic risk. And note I said treatable. So if you have high blood pressure, I'd take care of it. If you have a high ApoB, I would lower it. If you have insulin resistance, I'd take care of you. Blah, blah, blah. If you're a smoker, I'd smack you on the head and say stop smoking. But right now, we don't have a therapeutic agent per se, at least that is FDA approved, to, hey, take this drug and you will lower the concentration of LP little a. Those drugs are in development. These drugs are going to act through your genes and they're going to stop the hepatic production of apoprotein little a. And if your liver doesn't make apo little a, you cannot make an LP little a particle. They're in phase three testing right now, a few years away. Fingers are crossed that those drugs will show, hey, if you really eliminate LP little a and you do it safely, there's no downside to our drug. Wow, we've got a God-given, life-saving drug for people who have LP little a mediated risk. So right now, and I think the next, uh, our ensuing podcast, we're going to talk more about therapeutics. So I won't extol on it too much now, but way off label, the only drug we have now that can lower lipoprotein little a are these PCSK9 inhibitors. And I can't wait to explain to you how they do that. But suffice it to know, at least there's a little something. If you want to go off label, you might be able to help yourself now on that. Uh, as with all lipoproteins, there are concentration gradients at which risk begins. So most of us who really haven't inherited uh, the type of uh, APO little a genes that send your uh, APOA into the stratosphere have very low concentrations of LP little a in our plasma and have no LP little a mediated atherosclerotic risk. It gets ugly. There are two ways of measuring uh, a person's LP little a status. And uh, we don't do it by a gene test. You could get a gene. Do you have a, a gene test? But we, not, we really want to know the concentration of the particles carrying LP little a because that determines the risk. So in most labs, they report it in milligrams per deciliter. It's called LP little a mass. But there are other labs using more advanced assays. And that is where the fight is. Is my assay as good as your assay, as good as their assay? There's no standardized assay, unfortunately. Uh, it's measured in molar concentrations, nanomoles per liter. 
So if you're measuring in milligrams per deciliter, levels above 30 are considered high, above 50 uh, to 70 it gets seriously high. With a nanomolar concentration, it's above 125 nanomoles per liter. Now, there are some people walking around with 500 nanomoles per liter, so very, very, very high-risk uh, uh, individuals. So that's it. You get it checked once in your life. I guess the other thing I should tell you about it is higher risk as it is to generate atherosclerosis. It also is second a cause of a second cardiac mor morbidity and even mortality. The lipoprotein little a has the ability to invade the aortic valve in your heart. The aortic valve is the main valve that separates your big pumping left ventricle from your peripheral arteries. The heart contracts, blood flows through the aortic valve and then out to every other part of your body. But there's a valve that makes sure once it pumps, it closes so the blood doesn't backflow. Lipoprotein little a, if it in invades that valve, has properties that cause it to form bone in that valve. It has osteogenic properties. So this is associated with calcific aortic stenosis, which is a terrible disease. At a certain point, you're going to have to have your valve replaced if you're developing that. So another reason to check it in youngsters, because if you see, oh my goodness, you have a high LP little a, you will pay close attention to their aortic valve as they age, both with all the physical exam doctors use and periodic echocardiography or other images, because we do know now with calcific or any type of aortic stenosis, once your heart muscle starts to start to fail because it's too hard to pump through the valve, you better get that valve replaced. You cannot wait too long or you replace the valve and your heart is shot and it doesn't give replacing the valve is not so wonderful. So uh, there's two reasons why you need to check LP little a. Okay. I have a bunch of questions. The, the first I have, and it's probably more of a statement is that it seems very important to find therapeutics that can lower LP little a given, I believe you said one out of four people have elevated levels yep. of LP little a. So if we want to eradicate atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, it would seem that this is going to be um, very important for the medical field to to kind of unearth. Yeah, let me throw in one more thing here too. Uh, most of the data on LP little a has been investigated in Caucasian populations. They're starting to correct that mistake now. We now know it's a much worse risk factor in African-Americans. They have much higher levels than do Caucasians. So there's a population you absolutely want to be on top of LP little a. There are other ethnicities too, perhaps South Asians, where it's increased too. So, but the concentrations would be a little different on how you interpret them. Or so much lower levels would be worrisome in an African-American than the levels I gave to you, which are pretty much Caucasian levels. So there's that nuance also. And you, you mentioned that this is determined by genetics if someone's thinking okay well um i understand my uh, ldl cholesterol or ldl particle count could be influenced by genetics as well but i can change my diet or i have changed my diet and i saw that i saw that go down um, does diet influence lp little a at all nothing that's been seriously reproduced you're always going to see an anecdotal report on the internet hey i ate apples or blueberries and my LP little a fell. I'm glad if that's true and it's a sustained fall, but 
you look in all the textbooks, the guidelines, there is no lifestyle solution to elevated LP little a, as is so with a lot of genetic diseases. Look, I'm of the belief that every lipid abnormality has some genetic basis, but as you indicated, some of our run-of-the-mill ApoB, LDL, whatever problems can certainly be uh, improved a lot with proper lifestyle. Sometimes no, but it's always worth the trial but not for LP little a. So there's no known, aha, here's the definitive trial. But I think you also know, Simon, if you have any cardiovascular risk, eating a good healthy diet is good for your heart in the long run, no matter what it's doing to any given biomarker. Something I want to put a pin in and make sure that we come back. And uh, I want to just let put this on air so that you can remind me in case I forget, is I have seen some... Um, some discussion around statins, although they lower risk of events, can increase LP little a or have been shown to increase LP little a. So that that's interesting. Perhaps we can double back on that when we get into the, the therapeutic side of things. No, it's a big, and there's a little, so much misinformation on this on the internet. So, you know, when we talk about lipids, everybody, oh, Dayspring wants you to lower your lipids, lower your lipids, lower your lipids. And he's already hinted that Certainly, uh, investigators are looking at lowering LP little a concentrations is probably a good idea. It's undergoing investigation right now. But what is this that if you take a statin, it can increase your lipoprotein little a concentration? Oh, my God, would I dare ever take a statin? Every guideline right now that tells you how to treat a person with high LP little a, mission number one is lower ApoB. And the number one drug we got to lower ApoB is a statin. So having an elevated LP little a is actually a guideline indication as consider prescribing a statin for this person, even though the guideline people know, but the LP little a level might go up a little bit. So here's what you really have to know. Atherosclerosis is an LDL mediated disease. ApoB is most of your LDL particles. Uh, but hey, LP little a is an LDL particle. So if I look at a total LDL particle concentration, it is really the sum of my LDLs that do not have any APO little a attached plus my LP little a particles. That is a total LDLP concentration. The lab that many people use to get an LDL particle count uses nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. That technique cannot differentiate an LDL particle from an LP little a particle. They're all the same. So if you get a total LDL particle count, and let's say and a normal LDL particle count is around 1,000 nanomoles per liter. And remember, a nano, one mole is 10 to, to the 23rd power number of particles. So it's a lot of particles. Uh, uh, all right. And you have... You, you do have an elevated LP little a mass, say you're 40 or 50. All right. Of those LDL particles, which the laboratory is telling you is 1,000 nanomoles per liter. Now, your LP little a, you've already measured that in a separate lab test. It's high. You're in an at-risk zone. How many of those 1,000 LDL nanomoles of LDL particles are LP little a? 100. <laughs> so here is the golden rule. LP little a, as dangerous as it is, is a minority LDL particle. Okay. Now, particle for particle, an LP little a particle may be more atherogenic than an LDL without a, 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 
uh, apoprotein little a, but there are infinitely more normal LDL particles. So if I give you a statin, the statin is superb at lowering the real LDL particles. They drop by 40%, 50%, depending on the dose of the statin you're using. But LP little a, only in some people, might go up 10 or 20%. So you lower your real LDL particle count by several hundred, and you raise your LP little a particle count by 100 nan nanomoles of particles. So at the end of the day, yeah, I wish I didn't screw up your LP little a particle count a little bit, but I've taken so many damn LDLs out of your plasma. That is why the studies we have so far show statins reduce risk in people with LP little a. They don't uh, lower the risk as much as they would in people who didn't have LP little a, but they're bringing them a lot better than they would be if you didn't give a statin. So that's the mystery that solves that. One other kind of interesting piece to the puzzle <laughs> Apo little a, that protein that attaches, comes in two forms, really monstrous long, high molecular weight forms, and really short forms, low molecular weight. You can imagine the low molecular weight has a lot less kringles than the uh, big long one. It has a lot of kringles. Now, your liver makes these apo little a peptides. The liver can knock out small isoforms like there's no tomorrow. It takes the liver a long time to produce the big APOA particles. Once those are produced, the little APOA jumps on the LDL, it's out the damn liver. You can see already there's a backup producing big APO little A's, and they're so big, some of them are catabolized before they even jump on the LDL particle. So the thing that drives LP little A particle concentration is the small isoform. And it looks like the statins rev up the production of the small isoforms of uh, apoprotein little a, which explains their increase in LP little a particle count. I know it sounds terrible. Oh, it's a 20% increase, but it's a 20% increase of a really minority LDL particle. And the statin, sad that it's aggravating that, it's removing so many of your normal LDLs. At the end of the day, the statin has provided atherosclerotic risk reduction to you. Uh, I probably got some nice graphics yeah. I can send you on that. Yeah. So so essentially, irrespective of what a statin might do to LP little a, the net effect is a reduction in overall risk. And do you see a future where if there are therapeutics that prove effective at lowering LP little a, where a statin would be paired with a, an L, uh, a drug that lowered LP little Almost a? Almost certainly, because the drugs that are coming to lower apoprotein little a do not lower ApoB. So you're going to have to take the drug that can get rid of your apo little a in conjunction with an ApoB lowering drug, be it a statin, azetamide, benpidoic acid, or as we'll talk about in the future, the PCSK9 inhibitor. So by the way, so never ever stop us. First of all, don't repeat your LP little a. It's a once in a lifetime test. What are you doing repeating it for? We have no evidence that shows in either direction what a statin does to LP little a is good or bad. The preliminary evidence is it's good. So uh, there's no, no sense repeating LP little a and getting nervous about it because it's a meaningless on therapeutic metric right now. You mentioned before, if I heard you correctly, that LP little a oxidation occurs in plasma, which is different to the other ApoB containing lipoproteins. Is that right? 
No, it, it, most of the oxidation with the LP little a also occurs in the artery wall. Remember, what's getting oxidized is the superficial phospholipid layer uh, on the surface of the particle. Uh, so at, does that happen as it's entering the artery wall, in the artery wall? Probably mostly there. There aren't many things floating in plasma that can oxidize lipids. So, yeah, it, I probably wasn't clear on that when I said it before. That, uh, that oxidation is set off by an enzyme called LPPLA2, and that enzyme gets activated when the particle enters the artery wall and reactive oxygen species start acting on the phospholipids on the surface. And there is a new blood test out called oxidized phospholipids on ApoB, OXPL-ApoB, and it's specifically designed to analyze are you have high LP little a? Is it carrying these oxidized lipid moieties? I th it's a new test. We have a lot more adjudication to do with it, but it is available now. Certainly at Boston Heart Lab. I'm not sure if other labs offer it. But if I had two people with high LP little a, and one of them also had a high oxidized phospholipids on ApoB, I would likely worry about that person a lot more and probably be even more aggressive in my ApoB lowering right now. The other thing that the oxidized phospholipids ApoB seems to really be a secondary risk factor is the aortic stenosis part of the pathology with apoprotein little a. So much more to learn about that. But it is, you know, you got LP little, like anything else, there are some people with elevated LP little a who don't manifest any vascular disease down the road. So if you come in, who the heck do I throw the kitchen sink at and try and improve every cardiovascular risk factor? And who do I worry less about? I think right now, the oxidized phospholipid test is about the only one that can tell us that. And that test is just looking at oxidized phospholipids on LP little a or all ApoB? Yes, no, only on. And it's funny, I think it's a misnomer because it says oxidized phospholipids on ApoB. The oxidized phospholipids are really on the surface of the LDL moiety. It's not the ApoB getting oxidized. Mm -hmm. I mean, they may contain one or two, but it's really the surface phospholipids on the particle. It's uh, where the oxidized lipids are. Mm -hmm. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com 
forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Okay, so picking up where we left off in the first part of this lipid series, you said we can eliminate atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, but we have to act early. And a recent paper from the European Association of Preventative Cardiology said similar. They said strike early and strike strong. I think it's the American Association of Preventive Cardiology. Okay, it might be the American one. Yes, thanks for correcting that. <laughs> Give us some credit. Okay. <laughs> Look, Europe has been ahead of us on LP little a. I got no shame admitting that. But the paper you're quoting is the American Association of Preventive Cardiology. And yeah, it's a, you definitely want to hand out that reference. I mean, I've been tweeting about it. I saw you did the other day and it's mandatory reading. You don't have to be a genius or lipidologist to read this paper. And they basically want to change us all back into children with respect to our ApoB and LDL levels. And that means early in life, you determine are these concentrations out of whack and you do whatever you have to do to reduce it. Lifestyle. God's honest truth is most of these people will need drugs to get it to the appropriate level. But the consequences, not fun. Why do we have to act early? So if someone's thinking, you know, why don't we just lower ApoB containing lipoproteins when we get into our 40s and beyond when most people begin to get symptoms? For the same reason I would tell you to stop smoking if you told me you stopped, you started smoking today. Or should I tell you, go back in 40 years, if your chest X-ray ever shows a nodule of cancer, that's when I'm going to tell you to stop it. Atherosclerosis is a slow, indolent, silent disease that takes decades to develop, and the fuel for the fire is the cholesterol carried in the ApoB particles. So once I know you have pathological levels of that causal agent, I'm going to do what I can do. And, and the sooner in life I do it, I don't have to whip out four prescription drugs to drop it to normal, unless you are one of the few with a severe genetic inherited lipoprotein disorder. And if you do, then even if you're eight years old, I'll be using drugs in you then. But that's not most people. 
So it's identifying everything else early. My dad was a fireman. If he was driving down the street and he saw a bunch of leaves on fire, he wouldn't drive back by it and say, I'll wait till the house catches on fire. He'd stop the car and get out and put the fire out. And that's what lipidologists are now understanding we have to do. Recognize the risk for the fire and get on it with whatever equipment you have to ASAP. Like that analogy. Is this where the idea of cholesterol years comes from, similar to kind of pack years for smoking and risk of cancer? You've done your reading well, and that's sort of a new concept also. We've talked about that for smoking for a long time now, pack years, and now we're applying the same principle to you take your LDL cholesterol, you multiply it by the number of years, and they have reference ranges, and yes, because yeah, ApoB particles are terrible, but they're not going to kill you tonight five years from now, 10 years from now, they're going to cause pathology 30 to 35 years from now. So, and nowadays us boomers who are here now, I'm 77. I want to live to be a hundred. I'm not interested in croaking at age 80. I like my life right now. It's pretty good. So, uh, I, in my next life, I'll know to take care of my ApoB a lot sooner than I uh, do because I do have coronary atherosclerosis, as silent as thank God it has been. I'm pretty sure I've stabilized all my plaque with my therapies. But uh, in my next life, I never want to develop a coronary artery calcium score that's abnormal. And I would prevent that by taking care of ApoB first, wouldn't smoke, I'd take care of my blood pressure. I'd fight insulin resistance if I had it, like there was no tomorrow, because those are our treatments to prevent atherosclerosis. Okay, so let's let's dig into that. Maybe there's some parents listening and thinking about their kids. So when should risk assessment start in an ideal world? And what, what does a proper evaluation of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk look like? Pediatric uh, guidelines now recommend children get a lipid profile in their early age, certainly before the age of eight. If that you happen to know mom or dad has familial hypercholesterolemia because, hey, they've discovered and they're going to a doctor who's made the diagnosis, that child should be screened at age two for a lipid disorder because the worst familial uh, cholesterol disorder is homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. They got genes from mom and dad, so they have LDL cholesterols 8, 900. And those are the kids that actually have been known to get heart attacks by the time they're five and six years old, and they don't live very long, except now we're starting to get treatment, so the prognosis is improved. So most kids are not going to have homozygous familial hypercholesterol. That's a very rare disease. But heterozygous FH is one out of 200 people. So that, you know, when we have a 300 million people in the United States and a zillion around the world, that is not a rare disease at all. And the whole key to that is LDL cholesterol pack years. So the sooner we discover LDL cholesterol is above 140 milligrams per deciliter in a child, that child absolutely that child is not eating coconut or something to give a child is not on a ketogenic diet to send their LDL cholesterol in the stratosphere. That kid has a genetic problem. And genetic problems in kids, statins are FDA approved to give to children with heterozygous FH. And you would start treatment at that age based on this pack year hypothesis. You don't wait till the kid is 25 when he 
perhaps even would have a heart attack by then. I, I think in our last session, we talked about uh, the soldiers in the wars, uh, Vietnam, Korean, they get killed, unfortunately, due to war trauma, and they're full of coronary disease. The P-Day study, which was a uh, Louisiana uh, study in children who, you know, got hit by cars or whatever, and they died in their autopsy, and a, a shocking number of these kids were full of fatty streaks already. So this starts early in life, and so if we would start screening early in life, we'd have a much better handle at oh boy, this is the kid that for their whole life they're going to need uh, atherosclerotic preventative therapies. And who knows, in 15 years, there might be a simple gene alteration they take to be corrected. Right now, they have to go on various medications. So the proper time to get a standard lipid profile is very young. Now, if you're bringing your kid in to get a lipid profile and everybody should get an LP little a test once in their life, why wouldn't you do it at the exact same time? Conversely, mom and dad come to you. You're a good doctor. You do a workup. You check them for LP little a and mom or dad has LP little a. Uh, the kid doesn't have to race to his doctor to get an LP little a test. But if that kid hasn't had a lipid profile, he should get a lipid profile plus an LP little a test also. Now, what do I mean by lipid profiles? Should, what should a kid get? Look, in countries, every, you know, these tests cost money. And uh, so you might be limited. Minimum test you'd want would be a total cholesterol level, super cheap. And look, if your LDL cholesterol is through the roof, your total cholesterol is going to be through the roof. So that's a, the crudest screening test. I think in most civilized countries, you would get a lipid panel, which would be an LDL cholesterol. They would throw in a total cholesterol. You'd get your HDL cholesterol, which I don't think is that necessary, but it's part of a standard panel. And you would also get a triglyceride level. And we're starting to realize that's becoming important, too, because there are a number of severe genetic conditions that cause severe hypertriglyceridemia, which predispose even children to pancreatitis, aside from uh, lipid consequences. So uh, the full lipid panel is what a kid should get. Uh, they're very inexpensive nowadays in uh, most countries. And then if it's normal, look, Define when a kid starts going into early adulthood, he could have his next one. If it's abnormal or borderline, you repeat it in a year and see what's happened. So we've spoken a lot about ApoB, Tom, and uh, most uh, sort of basic uh, lipid panels, as you said, will measure total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol. Is is ApoB a better measurement, a better predictor of, of cardiovascular disease if someone's wondering about that and whether they should go to the effort or cost of, of ordering that? And, and also, where does non-HDL kind of come into this conversation? Yeah. So, look, ApoB is the ball game. ApoB is the signature of the particle. It's carrying cholesterol. It's going to induce atherogenesis. Particle number is the primary driving force in the artery wall. So ApoB would be the best test you could absolutely do. It's rather cheap. And look, in the United States, it's available in every lab. And the cash price is 10 bucks. Yeah, you know, labs 
you know, if labs could say, oh, I want 90 bucks for it, but most labs will give you a cash price. Third party payers often say, no, I'm not paying for that. That's an experimental test, even though <laughs> it's not an experimental test. The data is overwhelming on it. So if you can't, for whatever reason, get an APOB, and I've gotten emails back, hey, I'm in Canada, I can't get an APOB, and perhaps other countries in the world, maybe you have to see a specialist before you get APOB. I don't know. But so if you're stuck with a lipid panel, the only reason you're doing a lipid panel is twofold. There's one lipid concentration that you have to know, and that's triglycerides. For two reasons, there are two types of triglyceride disorders. One where the triglycerides is well above 500. That's a rare genetic disorder. If you have that, the mission in life is lower the triglycerides to prevent pancreatitis, not heart disease. Then there's everybody else who has a triglyceride less than 500. Most typically, they're diabetics or insulin-resistant people. And most typically, their triggers are in the 140, 150 range, not 400. And in those, ApoB becomes the goal of therapy. So triglycerides is important to exclude the rare hypertriglyceridemic disorders. Everything else in the lipid panel is just a poor man's guesstimate of ApoB, a poor man's surrogate of ApoB. So let's start with the total cholesterol level. Total cholesterol is the cholesterol in every lipoprotein in your plasma. LDL cholesterol plus VLDL cholesterol plus HDL cholesterol. Normally we're doing fasting so there are no chylomicrons contributing to cholesterol levels because they disappear rapidly postprandially. So here's the trick, though. So if you get a total cholesterol level, 80% of that cholesterol is in your LDL particles. And what is an LDL? It's an ApoB particle. So total cholesterol is a super poor man's surrogate guesstimate of ApoB. At what level should you be concerned? Above 200, you've got a definite serious ApoB level. I personally think above 150, you want to run out and get an ApoB test to see where it is. So 150 to 200 would cer should certainly suggest to a clinician or a patient, you've got hyperbeta lipoproteinemia, too many ApoB particles. All right, let's jump to the test everybody talks about, LDL cholesterol. Well, remember, 90% of your ApoB particles are LDLs. So obviously, LDL cholesterol has a pretty high correlation with your ApoB level, far higher than does total cholesterol. So if I see you have an elevated LDL cholesterol, should I just assume, hey, you're an ApoB uh, issue here and we're going to take care of it? No, because as good as it correlates, there are exceptions to the rule where the LDL cholesterol is quite low, but your ApoB is still high, or conversely, your LDL cholesterol is high, but your ApoB is normal. Those situations are said, hey, the two laboratory metrics are discordant. Normally, they agree with one another. They're concordant. So when you discover a, a discordance between ApoB and LDL cholesterol, trial after trial after trial has shown risk follows ApoB better than it does LDL cholesterol. So therefore, I don't want people coming up to me and telling me, oh, Tom, you're going to be so proud of me. I got a great LDL cholesterol level. Great. What's your ApoB? Oh, I don't know. Then don't even talk to me until you go get an ApoB. If your ApoB is also low, but if your LDLC is super and your ApoB is high, 
you have a risk that is not identified by LDL cholesterol. I'm one of the authors on a paper in diabetics where LDL cholesterol is 50 and about 20% of them still had high LDL particle concentrations. And yet they would be told, hey, your LDL cholesterol is 50. You have no worries whatsoever. Wrong. Discordance. All right, the final. Now, well, let's get HDL cholesterol out of the picture here. That's on every lipid panel. Tragically, for years, it was called the good cholesterol. We know now that's an idiotic terminology. Uh, so what is HDL cholesterol? Well, it's the cholesterol that's in all your HDL particles. Now, HDLs are not the cholesterol, they're not the lipoproteins who crash your artery wall and dump cholesterol. There's no ApoB on them. So they're not per se part of the atherogenic uh, uh, milieu that causes the disease. But Framingham, when it first came out, said, geez, people with, and that's an epidemiological study in the United States, people with low HDL cholesterol seem to be rather high risk for atherosclerotic disease. And study, Mr. Fitt came in and other epidemiologic studies seem to confer that, that yeah, LDL cholesterol is worrisome, but if your HDL cholesterol is low, it doesn't even matter if your LDL cholesterol is low, you're still at risk for heart disease. And study after study after study showed that. So much so that the lipidology world started developing all drugs that raised HDL cholesterol. Because if low HDL cholesterol is bad, if we raise it, we'll cure you. And every one of those trials has failed using a drug that raises HDL cholesterol. There was no cardiovascular outcome benefit. So now that took 30 years to happen. So it's easy for me to say now we know uh, treating low HDL cholesterol doesn't matter. But here's what really why low HDL cholesterol might be a risk factor, might not be. All of those early studies that came out and said low HDL cholesterol is bad news were never adjusted for apolipoprotein B because they didn't even have ApoB studies in those days. So we now know if you have low HDL cholesterol, immediately return to the lab and demand an ApoB level. And you will see by far the most common cause of, in, of low HDL cholesterol is insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. If you have insulin resistance with a low HDL cholesterol, your ApoB is through the roof. And that's why you're going to get atherosclerotic heart disease with your insulin resistance. Statins, uh, ADA mandates statins on everybody who's a diabetic above a certain age. And it's for that reason to get rid of the atherogenic ApoB containing particles. So low HDL cholesterol is a poor man's guesstimate that you probably have a high ApoB. We do know now there are people with low HDL cholesterol who do not get atherosclerotic heart disease. And we know there are people with elevated heart uh, HDL cholesterol who do. So you can never make an individual decision based on HDL cholesterol. If you want to tell me, hey, that Norway's got higher HDL cholesterol in Zimbabwe, all right, there'll probably be less heart attacks in Norway than there would be in Zimbabwe. But that never translates to an individual patient where you have to zero in on the causal agent. So please, those of you who have low HDL cholesterol, measure ApoB. And if it's high, your therapeutic goal is not to raise HDL cholesterol. That doesn't work. It's to lower ApoB. Okay. The last metric, uh, and an important one if you can't get ApoB, is you mentioned non-HDL cholesterol. Well, what the hell is that? 
Well, obviously, listen to what it is. Non-HDL cholesterol is the cholesterol that's not in your HDL particles, right? <laughs> you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to understand that word. So if cholesterol is not in an HDL particle, what type of lipoprotein particles would the cholesterol be in? There's only one other class of particles, your ApoB particles. So non-HDL cholesterol is the poor man's lingo for ApoB cholesterol. And obviously, in general, ApoB cholesterol, non-HDL cholesterol has a high correlation with ApoB. It's actually a higher correlation than does LDL cholesterol have to ApoB. So non-H, if you can't get ApoB, you're going to look at your LDL cholesterol, but even if your LDL cholesterol is fine, but your non-HDL cholesterol is still abnormal, you almost certainly have a high ApoB and you need, your LDLC might be a goal. Now you have to get your non-HDLC to goal. What you really have to get to goal is your ApoB level. So the one problem I still have with that, where ApoB is so readily available and cheap is, Yes, non-HDLC is better than LDLC is better than total cholesterol, but ApoB is better than any of them. There's nice studies published that shows there's even discordance between ApoB and non-HDL cholesterol, where the non-HDLC looks pretty good, but damn it, the ApoB is still high. That person needs more aggressive treatment. So those are your lipid measures. You do those, you throw in an LP little a, and you're off to a pretty good start on at least ascertaining lipid and lipoprotein mediated risk. The sort of take home message there is if you want to get a really good idea as to how many of these ApoB containing lipoproteins are crashing into your artery wall and potentially causing this um, cascade that leads to atherosclerosis, ApoB is going to be the best test followed by non-HDL cholesterol, followed by LDL cholesterol, followed by total cholesterol. Yeah. But think of non-HDL cholesterol. I said, hey, it's the ApoB cholesterol. But how do we come up with that number? You take total cholesterol, the cholesterol that's in all of your particles, you subtract from it the HDL cholesterol, and you're left with the ApoB cholesterol. So it's a simple calculation that anybody uh, who's graduated grammar school can do, uh, and it's easy. Of course, somebody's going to have to teach you what are the normal levels, but uh, it, you want to look at that. If you get it done in a lab, they probably have a little chart there that tells you what the risk ranges are. But uh, I think we all got to know them all. So I, I don't want you to go out and just do an ApoB and not look at the rest of the lipid panel. I think all of the information is useful. If you really were cash-strapped, I'd say the really only two – once you get LP little a, and that's done with forever – the only test you really need is triglycerides and ApoB. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we can basically say the big three then are ApoB, LP little a, you're going to do that once, and triglycerides. And if you have those three, you can really predict your risk of atherosclerosis. Yep. You've passed lipids 101 if you understand that. Mm -hmm. Can you just clarify one thing for me? Let's say someone uh, does not have ApoB measured, but they have measured their LDL cholesterol. And you spoke about discordance before. And I think you mentioned one of your studies that looked at people, uh, about 20% of people that had low LDL cholesterol had elevated ApoB, so there was discordance. Um, is there any clues in a standard lipid panel? Let's say you have an LDL cholesterol of 50 milligrams per deciliter and someone is listening now going, okay, I don't have my ApoB measured, but would I be right 
in thinking that if their triglycerides are also looking pretty healthy, pretty normal, that would potentially be a, a clue that their ApoB is going to be uh, concordant? If you want to make a gross generalization, what you said is probably true. But that's a gross generalization, which I would not want to bet your life upon. So let me explain discordance, why you can have a good LDL cholesterol and a high ApoB or vice versa, terrible LDL cholesterol, but a normal ApoB. The two things that determine your total LDL particle concentration are two distinct characteristics. Particle size, meaning particle diameter. LDLs are a heterogeneous group of lipoproteins. Some are rather small, some are rather big, some are sort of in between. It's like people. There's skinny people, there's normal belly-sized people, and there's uh, those with the increased girth people. But they're all people. So you have LDL particles that are heterogeneous mix. So they differ by their waist circumference, their diameter. But how else might these people differ? By the composition of their particles. There's basically only two lipids in the core of an LDL particle. X amount of cholesterol ester, cholesterol, and X amount of triglycerides. Any other lipid that's in there would be such a minuscule component that we don't have to talk about it right now. So a normal, a physiologically normal, a normally composed LDL particle typically if you look at its core lipids, is 80% cholesterol and 20% triglycerides. But what happens if I have people who have a normal size LDL, but for whatever reason, they have way more triglycerides than they should have in their LDL? Maybe they have 50% triglycerides. If the LDL has excess triglycerides, what does it have less of? cholesterol molecules because the volume is fixed with that certain diameter. So you can, if you have extra trigs, you have less cholesterol. If you have extra cholesterol, you have fewer triglycerides. All right. Now, the diameter of the particle, though, has everything to do with the volume of a particle. For those who remember geometry, the volume of a circle, a sphere, is four-thirds pi radius. It's a third power of the radius. So even a half nan um, nanometer size difference in an LDL particle translates into several hundred more cholesterol molecules a particle can carry. So I'm going to send you a slide because it's much easier to look at this slide than me talking about. I'm going to show you four LDL particles. Let's start on the left. It's a normal size LDL particle, not small. It's normal size. And it has 80% cholesterol and 20% triglycerides. How many cholesterol molecules would be in that LDL particle? This is all worked out. About 2,100 molecules of cholesterol uh, would be in that LDL particle. Now, right next to it, second from the left, is the exact same size LDL particle, but it's 50-50. There's way more triglycerides in it than it should be. So even though the particle is identical, the particle on the left had 2,100 uh, cholesterol molecules. This one has 1,800 cholesterol molecules. Now shift to the number three from the left. It's a small LDL particle, but it's got normal composition, 80% cholesterol, 20% triglyceride. It might have 1,500 molecules of cholesterol. It doesn't have the 2,100 because it's a smaller particle. And on the right is the most feared LDL of all. It's a triglyceride-enriched LDL. 
it would have very few cholesterol molecules, maybe 1,200. So you have four different LDL particles, too big, too small. What determines your LDL particle counts? If you have a mass of, say, 120 milligrams of cholesterol, does it take... It takes a hell of a lot more cholesterol-depleted particles than cholesterol-enriched particles to traffic the amount of cholesterol in your system. So people with the highest ApoB, the highest LDL particle counts, have small LDL particles or they have big LDL particles that are triglyceride-enriched. So obviously what you hinted at are the triglycerides part of the story here. Yes, they are. But here's the problem. You could make a generalization that, yes, as your trigs goes up, 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 you're going to have cholesterol-depleted LDL particles, but there's no triglyceride level I can ping. Aha! Your trig is 150. You are full of small or triglyceride-rich LDL. Maybe, maybe not. I have never had a triglyceride level above 105 in my life. I've been extremely insulin-resistant. And yet I've had all those cholesterol depleted particles, but yet you, uh, and I was a doctor. Oh, I never have to worry. My trigs are 102 today. I was drowning in triglyceride rich lipoproteins that just could not be diagnosed by looking at a triglyceride level. So I think that's why you need an ApoB. Had I done an ApoB early in my life, I, I would have seen good God. What is the cause of your high ApoB? Back then, I wouldn't have known that I had cholesterol-depleted LDL particles. And I'll wrap this up by saying, and now I'm going to explain why diabetics typically have low HDL cholesterol. Because an HDL particle should carry virtually no molecules of triglyceride, a couple. But as triglycerides go up in the bloodstream, and they're mostly carried in VLDLs, the VLDLs transfers their triglycerides to the HDLs. The HDL ships its cholesterol back to the VLDL in a one-on-one -on -one swap. So all of a sudden, you develop triglyceride-rich HDLs, a very pathological particle. It, but if the HDL is gathering triglycerides, it's losing cholesterol. If an HDL, if the group of HDLs loses cholesterol, their HDL cholesterol will drop, 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 drop. But where is it going? Into an ApoB particle. That's why you have to measure ApoB in low HDL cholesterol. And this is a reason people use this triglyceride HDL cholesterol reason. And they say, hey, if it's abnormal, you're going to have high ApoB, small LDL particles, VLDL remnants. They don't say that, but that's what's really going on. They think it's a marker of whatever. It's kind of... If you believe everything I've said about HDL cholesterol, it's the world's most useless marker. HDL cholesterol correlates with nothing. What we really need to know about HDLs is do your HDLs perform the proper functions that are cardioprotective or whatever else they do? Or might you have the type of HDLs that are injurious to your artery walls? They're called dysfunctional HDLs. The only blood tests I know available to evaluate HDLs is HDL cholesterol. And HDL functionality has Zippo relationship to HDL cholesterol. So you just don't know. So therefore, if HDL cholesterol is a useless metric, any ratio that imbibes HDL cholesterol is a useless ratio. There's all sorts of ethnic variabilities with that ratio too, which I don't have to get into. So it should not be used. Stop using the triglyceride HDL cholesterol mm -hmm. ratio. 
And just to to clarify or, or tie off on one thing that you said there, um, because there is this kind of, I guess, rhetoric online that LDL cholesterol being elevated doesn't matter so much if the particles are large and, and fluffy uh, versus this small dense. But what I'm hearing from you is that um, really what determines the risk is the number of particle, total particles, the APOB, and we should probably be focusing less on whether the LDL particles are small, dense, or large, fluffy. Yes, and the simple thing that shoots that down and murders that silly assumption is one of the, mo- the two hi- highest risk atherosclerotic diseases are familial hypercholesterolemia, whether you identify the genetic risk factor or whether it's polygenic hypercholesterolemia, where you can identify what gene is abnormal. They have about the highest risk you can have for heart disease. Those people virtually have 100% fluffy, buffy, large HDL, excuse me, LDLs. But what do they have? A ton of them. So the big LDL crashes the artery wall. The rule is with entry into the artery wall, any ApoB particle that has a diameter less than 70 nanometers in diameter can enter the artery wall. Let me now rattle off the ApoB particles that have a lesser diameter than 70. Every collimicron remnant, every VLDL remnant, every IDL particle, and every LDL particle. The biggest LDL is 25 nanometers. The smallest is 18. So uh, there's no shortage of ApoB particles that can sneak through the artery wall. Uh, Maybe if you have a collimicron that's 200 nanometers in diameter, that's not going in. But as soon as this loses its trigs, it becomes smaller and then it's going in. So it's a silly old concept that should have been buried a long time ago. Okay, so... I'm interested in in what the kind of upper level of ApoB is that we'd like to see for this young person. What do we want to see their ApoB fall under? And I think we spoke about 80 milligrams or 85 milligrams per deciliter previously as a kind of threshold. But the ESC guidelines, and I'll show a, a table, table 10 on screen here for anyone watching on YouTube, put into the show notes for those that are listening. In these guidelines, they they put forward different apolipoprotein B targets and then the corresponding non-HDL cholesterol and LDL cholesterol, depending on someone's uh, risk. And they suggest to target an apolipoprotein B level of 80 milligrams per deciliter, which corresponds to 70 milligrams per deciliter for LDL cholesterol for people who are under 70 years old that are at high risk. Do you think that this should be the level that even low-risk people should target? <laughs> this is a great discussion. Look, the, the goal, if you want to treat somebody, your goal of therapy should be to prevent this uh, chronic disease from ever developing. And our problem right now is all of those goals you just rattled off are based on 10-year risk assessments. So in other words, if I make your LDL, your ApoB here, in the next 10 years, are you going to get a heart attack? Well, unless you're 80 years old, very few people are going to have heart attacks in the next 10 years. But if we start rethinking about lifetime risk of atherosclerosis, then the levels that are going to induce an eight-year-old to a lifetime risk of atherosclerosis 
are going to be a lot lower than is this kid going to have a heart attack in the next 10 years. It would be same with a 30-year-old man or woman. At what ApoB or LDL cholesterol do I worry about so I can ensure them, hey, for the next 10 years, you're not going to have an event. And at what ApoB, LDL cholesterol, can I look at them in the eyes and say, for the rest of your life, you're never going to have an atherothrombotic event. So more and more in the paper you just cited today uh, that came out, we're starting to reevaluate and look at lifetime risk assessment. For the same reason I tell you to stop smoking when you're 12 years old. I don't wait. I smoke for 30, 40 years, and then I'll tell you to stop it because half your lungs will be destroyed and you might have cancer by then. So I don't want your arteries to ever develop. I don't want you to be one of those I don't want you to be a soldier has to fight a war, but I don't want you to get run over by a car and they find out you had coronary artery disease or God forbid you had a coronary event at a young age uh, because you never got your lipids checked. So th these artificial numbers that they come up with, uh, you know, what are you looking to do? Prevent a heart attack in 10 years or lifetime re re reduction of risk of heart attacks? Uh, and that will choose what you want. Now, interesting, if I like to look at it First of all, what I'm going to tell you is going to tell you two things, that there's no such thing as a low ApoB can hurt you. So do you really care how much I lower your ApoB or cholesterol metric that correlates with ApoB? When children come out of mom's womb and they take, yay, and they start crying, uh, if we measured their, and remember, they just spent nine months in the womb having the most explosive growth development, brain development that they will ever have, and they come out with LDL cholesterols of 20 and ApoBs of 30. And, and oh my God, because if I made uh, an adult patient LDL cholesterol 20, they have a heart attack. They go on the internet and say, I'm going to die tomorrow. That's funny. It's not killing all these kids that are coming out of their moms of cholesterol deficiency. If we then take the five-year-old, and let's repeat, the ApoB is 50 milligrams per deciliter. And that kid has gone through the tremendous growth spurt, the brain development of childhood. His brain probably stops growing when he's five years old, you know. But the low cholesterol levels, the low ApoB did not stunt the kid's growth, did not stunt his adrenal function. We won't know about his gonads until he hits puberty, but trust me, it's not going to screw up his gonads by the time he can start using them. So we we just have to stop fearing that make these low metrics are dangerous in any possible way. Uh, these kids with such low ApoB are not dying of malnutrition or anything else. So when... Ideally, then, as Peter Libby has said in some of his part, that's the physiologic ApoB concentration, 30 to 40. The physiologic LDL cholesterol level is 10 to 30. And if we could all, by some miracle, maintain LDL cholesterols of 10 to 30, ApoBs of 30 to 40, there can't possibly be atherosclerosis, LP little a aside. Uh, and uh, how do we know that? by some of the genetic diseases that teach us that. And there's two I want to talk about. The first, I've mentioned the word PCSK9. PCSK9 is a protein that destroys your LDL receptors. LDL receptors is what pulls your ApoB particles out of plasma into the liver for catabolism. So you want to have a lot of LDL receptors. If you do, you'll never have a high ApoB. But PCSK9, once the LDL receptor comes into the liver, PCSK9 destroys it. 
So if you or liver destroys your LDL receptors, you can't clear ApoB particles. Your ApoB level is through the stratosphere. People with genetic, it's called gain of function of PCSK9, they overproduce PCSK9, have no LDL receptors. It's one of the causes of familial hypercholesterolemia. They have significantly premature atherosclerotic disease. But there's another group who God liked, and he gave them loss of function of PCSK9. They can't make PCSK9. Their liver cannot destroy its LDL receptors. Their LDL receptors' half-life is extended. They clear LDL particles like there's no tomorrow. They go through life with LDL cholesterols of 10 to 20, ApoB levels of 30. There's virtually no evidence of atherosclerosis in these people. And better yet, there's no evidence of any cholesterol deficiency in these people. So, wow. The other genetic defect, not quite as potent, but it all moves in the same direction. We absorb cholesterol from our gut lumen into the intestine, which sends it into the liver. The, the receptor that pulls cholesterol from the gut lumen into the enterocyte is called the Neiman-Pick C1-like-1 receptor, NPC1L1. It grabs cholesterol molecules, it pulls them in. If you don't have NPC1L1, meaning you have genetic loss of function of the gene that controls, you can't absorb cholesterol in your gut. Those people have low LDL cholesterol, and they have a drastically lower incidence of atherosclerotic heart disease as time goes on. Now, their LDL cholesterol isn't as low as the loss of function of PCSK9. It's maybe 15 milligrams per deciliter lower than what the average person would have. But over a lifespan... Simply having LDL cholesterol reduced by 15 milligrams per deciliter translates into no heart disease. So we have two genetic, and the cool thing is now, for us lipidologists who are into therapeutics, if you weren't born with the right genes, I have a PCSK9 inhibitor that will do exactly what the function of the gene does. If you didn't you don't have loss of function of Neiman pick. I've got a drug called azetamide, which takes out the Neiman pick C1 like protein and causes hypoabsorption of cholesterol. Both of those drugs have now been proven to reduce the incidence of atherosclerotic disease, make the arteries look better on imaging. So it's the genetic, you know, if we knew the genetic stuff years ago, it would have been so easy to discover what drugs you have to invent. That <laughs> came later. So if we're, if we're looking at, and I appreciate what you're saying is lower the better, there's no real downside to... And sooner the better. Those yeah. people, their LDL is low at birth. Right. So sooner the better, lower the better. We see that from these genetic studies. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the cholesterol years, thinking about lifetime exposure to these ApoB-containing lipoproteins. So let's say early in life we measure someone, Tom, and their um, ApoB is 65 or 70 milligrams per deciliter. So it's kind of below that threshold, but it's not super, super low. It's not where they would have their ApoB level at birth. Um, is, is there, like, when would there be an indication for... Uh, drug therapy, like what, what's that sort of threshold where you'd be thinking, okay, I'd actually like to get this ApoB lower? Yeah. So what we do then is we look at our epidemiological studies, the clinical trial data, even some of the Mendelian data we have, and we, we see 
these are not these genetic freaks who've been blessed with the great genes, but we still have to sooner or later start respecting ApoB and M at what level. So what we do now is we use what we call population percentile cut points. So if I took everybody in the world and measured, let's say, ApoB on them, you're going to have some people have really, really low ApoB. Some of them will be genetic. Some will be whatever, probably genes we haven't discovered yet. And then there will be the nightmares on the right side of the bar where, oh, my, their uh, ApoB is in the stratosphere. And then it's a bell-shaped curve. There will be some people right in the middle. So who do we worry at? So would ApoB below 60 would be you're in the bottom fifth percentile of the human population. Not many people with ApoB below 60 ever get heart attacks, and especially the longer it's been under 60. I mean, if your ApoB has been 200 and next month I make it 60, you've still had 50 years of exposure to ApoB, but you get the point. And likewise, if I start to see, wow, your ApoB is like above 120, that's the 80th percentile. That's the heart attack zone. So if you came up to even a young person came to me and their ApoB was in the 80th percentile, I'd have to talk seriously to them or if they are still adolescents to their parents and convince them that now is the time we're going to start trying to do what we can do pharmacologically. If you see there are lifestyle issues, you will certainly educate them on all of those things too, all crucial important. You'd watch their blood pressure. You obviously wouldn't let them smoke. But that's, I think, at an 80th percentile ApoB, pretty much adolescence and above, you have to start considering treatment nowadays because it's this ApoB years that we're really worried about. Or so. so how about now you're... What's the 20th percentile? And that would be with an ApoB of around 80 milligrams per deciliter. So most physicians nowadays, if you didn't have six other cardiovascular risk factors, you're not a diabetic, you're a mom, dad, and Uncle Joe didn't croak when they were 22 years old of a heart attack, so you have less, they're not hypertensive little kids or young adults, you would probably be happy with an ApoB of 80. Uh, it starts to hit around 100. Uh, I'm, you come to me, a lipidologist who believes this sort of LDL years, I'm going to, you're my son, you're going on a drug with an ApoB of 100. If it, it, Look, if you've got the worst lifestyle in the world, you would always try that for X number of months and see what you can do. So those are sort of the numbers. I, I think if you had an ApoB of 100, 120, and you're in this so-called early primary prevention uh, phase, we would try and make it 80. I don't know that I would try and blow it down to 40. I could with today's drugs, but that might be overkill. But I'd watch you closely. And at a certain age, you know, imaging is not good early in life. You can start doing it later in life to see, my God, is there plaque that we didn't realize? Some people use the carotid imaging, which is non-invasive and very easy to do. And Certainly carotid irregularities would show up before a coronary calcium test turned positive. So there are other ways of more seriously investigating a patient. So um, there's no set rules. Everything is, you know, you do a really super family history, you examine the patient, and you also get a feel. You know, if you're a good doctor, you know this person could be ready to die next week and they would never take a drug even if you suggested it to them so you know you have to be careful you, you can't come out not talk to anybody and say here's two prescriptions start them tomorrow i'm interested in 
when we do make a shift, so say we we start taking a PCSK9 inhibitor or statin or azetamibe or some sort of combination, or we change our lifestyle, and maybe I'll use myself as an example here. So um, my LDL cholesterol from the blood test that I have going back a few decades, it was, and I didn't have ApoB initially i have since done that of course but um over those the the couple of decades where i do have the results my ldl cholesterol was typically sitting at about 120 milligrams per deciliter and um after making some lifestyle changes clearly i mean i'm fortunate that my genes allowed me with lifestyle changes to go from 120 to about 70 milligrams per deciliter um and my lp little a is essentially zero so that's all good stuff what i'm interested in is through the couple of decades or two three decades where i was exposed to say 120 milligrams per deciliter would i have been laying down some fatty plaque or some fatty streaks or plaque and if someone makes changes be it through um, a, a drug or lifestyle and gets down to something like 70 milligrams per deciliter what happens to that plaque? Do you see? Does it just stabilize, or does it does it disappear? Does it start to reduce? Yeah. So, so look, we the only way I could answer your question is if you did get run over by a car and we autopsied you, if you were running that type of LDL cholesterol at your age, I would suspect we'd see something histologically in your coronary arteries. Yes, nothing that was going to do you any harm or. Uh, cause a vascular event, so to speak, of or so. But let's say you didn't get run over by a car and somehow through more sophisticated imaging nowadays, we did see, wow, you do have a little bit of plaque in your artery wall. It's not intruding into the lumen. It's not. And we have all sorts of great imaging nowadays that can even tell us the quality of that plaque. Is it an inflamed, irritated plaque or is it stable plaques, so to speak? Uh, so if we saw you had some plaque, and if we did, and I could show you the image, it's only a fool who would not accept serious pharmacologic treatment once you show. Good. It's like showing you a chest x-ray and you got a nodule in your damn chest. Are you going to ignore it? No. So uh, the, the million dollar question is, should I make it disappear? Or is that really necessary? That would be called regression of your plaque or whatever it is in your artery. And I think what we now know is, nope. We really just have to stop it from progressing, stop it from developing into more vulnerable plaque that inflames the artery, can even rupture and induce thrombi in your artery and everything. So if we can stop the plaque from growing, and what typically happens histologically is the body just scars it off. It builds a lot of smooth muscle around it. So it really can't expand anymore. Over time, some of that scarring develops calcification, which starts to show up on a type of x-rays we do nowadays. So if we can stabilize and calcify your plaque, I don't lose sleep that I didn't make it disappear. I don't have data that shows if in 10 years from now it's disappeared, your prognosis would be any better than if I just stopped it from progressing. So, and that's the more realistic uh, solution. You know, regression, even the studies that have shown regression, you're talking about hundreds of a millimeter reduction. It's not like, you, you know, this big fat plaque is going to disappear anytime. It might take you a hundred years to make it disappear. 
So I think stopping progression, the old word was stabilizing your plaque so it doesn't expand anymore. It doesn't get irritated, ruptured, inflamed, releasing its contents that sets off thrombotic mechanisms. So that's it. And look, you're not going to run and get an x-ray every year, a CTA, to see whether that's happening or not. Uh, a coronary calcium is basically only showing you are scarring it off. It doesn't tell you are you not developing uh, a non-calcified plaque, which might be more stable or so. So that's not the best tool to judge the efficacy of your therapy or so. The best tool we have that I can look you in the eyes and say, I've done what I can do is normalize your blood pressure, normalize your insulin resistance, and normalize your apolipoprotein B. That's what I can do for you. And the data is highly supportive of that. And just to be clear, so in terms of stopping progression, the apolipoprotein B sort of target is under 80 milligrams per deciliter or an LDL cholesterol under 70? No, I think if you had plaque, you're the one I want it under this uh, fifth percentile, 60 milligrams per deciliter. If you didn't have plaque, say when we started, you had an LDLC of 120. We don't think you have plaque. Maybe we even looked at it and it's not there. I, 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 you could probably be content at 80 milligrams per deciliter in that case. Once you know you that person has discernible atherosclerosis, you got to make them a kid again with their ApoB. We spoke about triglycerides and, and HDL before. Um, something else that I see, Tom, is folks pointing to various studies suggesting that triglyceride uh, HDL ratio as a kind of surrogate marker of insulin resistance is su is a superior predictor of cardiovascular disease risk than ApoB. Do you do you have any views on that and how we should be thinking about this? Yeah, I, I think I spoke about that. A little. No, it's nonsense. The triglyceride HDL ratio is like one of these poor man surrogates of ApoB. So that's all it is. Except it's very ethnic sensitive. African-Americans have probably the worst insulin resistance, the most type 2 diabetes. None of them have high triglycerides. None of them have low HDL cholesterol. Why are they so insulin resistant? They have hypertension. They have big waist size and they have glucose perturbations. They but have normal and perfect HDL cholesterol and triglycerides. So if you use a triglyceride HDL ratio in a black, you'll say, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's totally meaningless. They're highly insulin resistant people who need aggressive therapy. So since HDL cholesterol might be an indicator of risk if it's low, might not if it's high, but there are so many exceptions to the rule. You just not cannot use any ratio that includes HDL cholesterol. Look, for years, I was an associate editor of the Journal of Clinical Lipidology. If anybody ever sent in a paper with these silly ratios, total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, ApoB to ApoA1, that would be thrown in the garbage can and rejected, you know, because we've got better markers. Perhaps at a certain point in our development, they gave us some good insight on what may be going on. But now with our newer, more precise lipoprotein markers, we really have a, a better idea. And look, if you really are so hung up that you have to know insulin resistance, and I'm all for knowing that, it's a big risk factor. Don't use the triglyceride HDL ratio. Do an NMR analysis of your lipoproteins. They have, they report something called the lipoprotein insulin resistance score. And they use certain lipoprotein signatures, metrics that are associated with insulin resistance. So what do they look at? 
the size of your big VLDL particles. Who has big VLDL particles? People who have triglyceride excess in their liver. If you have perfect triglycerides, you never make big VLDL particles because you don't need big VLDLs if you don't have extra triglycerides. They also look at VLDL diameter. So they look at large VLDL particle concentration and VLDL diameter. If they're abnormal, they plug it into their algorithm. Those are two characteristics suggesting insulin resistance. The next two things they look at is your large HDL particles. If you are insulin resistant, they don't have large HDL particles for the simple reason that Triggs got sent to their HDL particles. Triggs makes an HDL particle undergo what we call rapid lipolysis. The Triggs are removed, the HDL shrinks and disappears. So they don't have any big HDL particles. So a reduction in large HDL particle concentration is a signature of insulin resistance. They measure HDL particle diameter. Obviously, if you don't have big HDLs, the most common cause is insulin resistance. Then they move on to LDL particles, and they look at two parameters. Not total LDL particle count, small LDL particle count. If it's up, the thing that causes genesis of small LDL particles is triglycerides getting into the big LDL particles. As you lose the trigs, the particles become small. And then they measure LDL diameter. So obviously insulin resistant people, because they're hydrolyzing their big LDLs, have short, small LDL diameter. So now I add everything up. Large VLDLP, VLDL size, large HDL particle concentration, HDL size, small LDL particle concentration, LDL, LDL diameter. And the more pluses you have there, the insulin resistance scores goes from zero to 100. Above 50, you're in the world of insulin resistance. At 100, <laughs> you're seriously insulin resistance. And they have a very sophisticated algorithm proven in clinical trials that they can give you a score. So throw the triglyceride HDL ratio in the garbage and use the NMR lipoprotein insulin resistance score. Way, way, way more accurate. And even more accurate is those lipoprotein abnormalities occur in life long before the insulin level ever starts to rise. So it's really a super early premature signature, all lipoprotein signatures of insulin resistance. Interesting. Okay, so to recap, ApoB, LP little a as a one-off, and triglycerides are sort of the big three best tests for, for looking at, for predicting your risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Who are you recommending the lipoprotein insulin resistance score for? Well, look, it's pretty much available only in America, I think. So you'd have to be in the United States and you'd, uh, you'd have to go to LabCorp, which is the lab that offers that nowadays. Uh, if you didn't want to do that, better than the triglyceride is just measure serum insulin level, to be honest with you. Above 10, bad news. Really, you like it under 5. Uh, you know, even the ADA, it's 5, 6. Five, they, they start to call you insulin resistance. So uh, insulin level might is a more available test. Almost every lab can do an insulin level. Uh, only a few labs are doing the NMR. And, and I think it's proprietary. So LabCorp is probably the only one doing the LPIR. And if someone's wondering, Tom, how does the insulin resistance play into atherogenesis? How is it increasing the risk of the plaque buildup? Easy, because you know, uh, it's called metabolic disarray. 
people who have a high insulin levels, maybe they have a multitude of all sorts of abnormal uh, vascular forces ongoing in their body. Most of them are hypertensive. They have all, they are prone to endothelial dysfunction. They have these lipoprotein abnormalities we talk of. They have a tendency to coagulation abnormalities. They might have homocysteinemia, high uric acid. And you start combining all of those and they're all contributory things beyond ApoB that generate uh, atherogenesis. So look, ApoB is certainly the initiator, but if you want to throw six other things on top of ApoB, it's a much worse situation. You know, that's a four alarm fire, going back to my fire department analogies, not a one alarm fire. <laughs> okay, let's let's uh, think about an avatar here, a 35-year-old Chris, and he comes to see you. He's just heard you talk about um, an ApoB level. You should have uh, given me a woman case. It's International Women's okay. Day today, I think. Okay. Well, let's change. Let's, <laughs> no, but just stick with let's change it to Christina. So uh, okay. Christina, um, and, and perhaps there are some women women who go by Chris as well. So, um, but I did say he, so let's, let's change it to, to she, she comes to you and she has a history of her, uh, ApoB being about 120 to 130 milligrams per deciliter. You mentioned earlier, that's, that's kind of a level and she's tried to make lifestyle changes and it hasn't really budged. So that's a level where you're, um, somewhat concerned and you'd like to see it lower. But she also presents to you, remember she's 35, with a coronary artery calcium scan and it, show, it, it came back with a score of zero. And so she says to you, well, doesn't this scan prove to you that despite the, the high level of LDL cholesterol or ApoB, it doesn't seem to be sort of negatively affecting me? And I would say, yes, if all I was worried about you is for the next 10 years, uh, I have very little worries that you're ever going to wind up in a CCU or a bypass unit or so. But Christina, you seem like a very nice woman. Uh, I know you got two little kids, so you want to one day be a great grandma too. So you want to be 80 and 90 years old. So at a certain point, we're certainly going to have to worry about your ApoB level, despite the fact that at your mid-30 age, you don't have any coronary atherosclerosis. So two things I would look at, Christina, before even mentioning that I want to use drugs or I don't want to use drugs. What is your LP little a? If that's high, she's going on a drug in my uh, clinic, that's for sure, an ApoB-lowering drug. But I'd want to know other things about her. In women, the pregnancy history is crucial. Has she had uh, how many children does she have? At what age did your children come along? Uh, uh, were there any complications during the pregnancy, preeclampsia, hypertension of pregnancy, things like that, diabetes? They would all, they all pretend early cardiovascular risk in a woman as she uh, gets in that perimenopausal age or so. And you would take an ApoB level much more serious in a woman who had that. For sure, you'd want to know the family history. I'd want to know early in life, was PCOS ever a problem? Polycystic ovarian syndrome, because <clears throat> that predisposes them to significant risk. So we should have stuck with your male evaluation. They're a lot easier to evaluate. There's <clears throat> so much more to know about a, a woman. 
when you really want to zero in on a most accurate cardiovascular risk assessment. So let's assume she had none of those above. If she had children, I'd want to know, did she lactate, by the way? That offers cardioprotection as time goes on. Then if, no, I never breastfed the kids, that would predispose her to more cardiovascular risk also. So you have all those things you'd want to actually document uh, uh, you know, miscarriages, or what was the size of the baby when they're born? Were they really big kids or normal weight kids? All imply cardiovascular risk down the road a little bit. So again, if she had none of those and a negative coronary calcium, the next thing I would ask her is, are you and your husband planning on having any more children? Because if she says yes, when? Soon, you're 35, you're not going to wait till you're 50 to have them. Yeah, you might not want to get into lipid drug management if the uh, with a negative coronary calcium and the lipid levels weren't severely malignant or so. So I might give her, fine, we're going to watch you closely, go have more kids if you want to. And when you come back and tell me that I'm done with kids and I'll either accept birth control pill or have my tubes tied or um, hubby's got the uh, his tied off, then we would start to consider when do we really start? ApoB lowering drug in you. And to be honest with you, if her ApoB is up in that 60th percentile range sooner rather than later, if I can ex not worry, she wants to have any more children down the road. So, but the bottom line is individualize, individualize, individualize. Every human is different. What I might suggest to her would have no application to the next woman that walks in. Why is it that if she was planning to have more children, you wouldn't start lipid-lowering therapy. Is it that they can affect the development of the, the fetus? In part, yeah. Look, if you're going to go through a pregnancy nowadays, it's best not to be on any non-necessary drugs. So she's going to be pregnant for nine months. She doesn't have a super malignant ApoB level that's going to kill her in nine months. She doesn't have existing coronary disease, so she might actually have a heart attack during her pregnancy. So oh, why would you want to uh, mess with drugs? If her ApoB, though, was super serious, I would say, listen, you take this drug until you now say, that's it. We're going to start planning for the kids. We're going to, you know, what they got to do to have kids. So then I would stop the statin therapy. Then say, go get pregnant. Hopefully it'll occur quickly. We'll give you nine months. We'll give you a year or two to lactate. And then we will res uh, consider resuming. Now, if she really had, say, familial hypercholesterolemia, disastrous lipids, statins are now approved for the later stages of pregnancy to use in very high-risk women. It, whereas they were always what we used to call category X, unapproved. Now there are dispensations for the super high-risk but a non-super high risk, you're, you're not going to treat lipids during the pregnancy. If a 35-year-old came to you presented with you know, very high ApoB and they didn't have, they didn't come with the coronary artery calcium scan, they hadn't, they hadn't done that and they said, what's the best imaging for me to get? Would it, would, would it be a coronary artery calcium score or would it be a CT angiogram? Well, if they could afford it, it would be a CT angiogram because that would show us both calcified and non-calcified plaque. It is possible to have no calcium plaque, but we still see some plaque there uh, and occasionally even scary plaque. So that's the best test, but it's super expensive. There's a, a little bit more radiation involved with that than there would be with a coronary calcium. By the way, the CTA includes a coronary calcium, but it also 
images your arteries for everything else that's going on. Assuming most patients aren't going to have the few thousand dollars necessary for that, their third-party payer would never approve a CTA for them under those circumstances unless they were having chest pain. Then you could get it done. So you would go with the coronary artery calcium, which is much cheaper, easy, negligible radiation, and, uh, and get it. Unless, suppose I gave my spiel to that person, and for whatever reason, that person is worried about coronary disease, says, doctor, if you want me to go on a lipid-lowering drug, I'll do it. Then I wouldn't waste money on the coronary calcium. I'd, I'd start them on drug therapy. But most of the time in younger people, you do have to twist their arms. So you'd want to gather. And I, you know, I'd be okay if the coronary calcium was zero to say, all right, we're going to wait. We'll repeat it in six years and see what you're doing. Let's say Christina is now 35 years down the road. And she, so she's 70 years old and she, she hasn't been on lipid lowering medication. She didn't see you when she was 35 and she presents her ApoB is still at that 120 to 130 milligrams per deciliter. She's, she, as far as she knows, that's been her sort of exposure level through her adult life. And again, she presents with a coronary artery calcium scan and it is zero. So she's 70 years old. She has this elevated ApoB above what you would say is optimal, but her coronary artery calcium score is zero. Are you concerned with her ApoB at that stage? You know, not for coronary artery disease. You might give or say you've made it this far. You know, you're, uh, we, we probably can be less, assuming she has no other risk factors, hypertension. But we do know giving statins to people with abnormal ApoB, LDL cholesterol at that age do reduce strokes. So that I'd have to have a discussion with her. I'm really not worried you're going to have a heart attack. But, you know, at your age, strokes are far worse than heart attacks. You might survive a heart attack and be no worse than where. You, odds of surviving a stroke without an impediment are not good. So uh, the one indication of perhaps prescribe a statin at that age would be stroke prevention. So, and I, look, if her ApoB was up, her LDL cholesterol would be likely be up a little bit. So I think there'd be still an indication for a statin. If she refused it after I told her that, if she has no fear of stroke, I'd tell her to go home and Google stroke and look at what happens to people when they have strokes. Uh, and, and But the decision is ultimately hers. But I would, if she was my mom's sister, I'd be twisting her arm a little bit. Let's, you know, there's like no downside to a statin for the most part. Let's try it in you. Let's say someone presents to you uh, who's consuming a diet that contains a lot of dietary cholesterol. So this kind of feeds back to something we were speaking about last last episode and I guess trying to determine if someone is a hyperabsorber. So they come, they have an elevated ApoB, they tell you that, you know, as part of their diet, they're doing six or 10 eggs a day kind of thing. Maybe it's a thousand or 1800 milligrams of dietary cholesterol a day. Would you be interested in trying to determine if they are one of the 20% of people that are a, a cholesterol hyperabsorber and, and how would you kind of go about doing that? <laughs> now, let me tell the audience, I've written two over 30 page textbook chapters on understanding absorption of cholesterol in the gut. So uh, it's a particular major league interest of mine. So, and it's super complex. So, uh, 
the bottom line would come down to, look, if you had a normal ApoB, I don't care whether you're a hyperabsorber or a hypersynthesizer, ApoB is the determinant. But if you did have a high ApoB, would it be nice to know, is that due to your body is making too much cholesterol or is absorbing too much cholesterol or both? And the answer would be yes, because if your ApoB, once it's at a certain threshold, I'm going to recommend a drug for you. So if I could prove you're just the hypersynthesizer, then you want a drug that inhibits cholesterol synthesis. And we have two nowadays, statins and bempedoic acid. If I see, boy, your ApoB is all that your gut is out of whack and you're overabsorbing cholesterol like there's no tomorrow, but you're not oversynthesizing, I would give you a cholesterol absorption blocker, the azetamide. It's sold to Zeti in the United States. It has different brand names in other countries. Uh, if I did some sort of testing that showed, my God, this person is just synthesizing too much cholesterol and absorbing it, I would use combination therapy to get your ApoB under control. By the way, here's how those drugs lower ApoB. What determines your clearance of ApoB particles out of plasma is, I hinted at it, how many LDL receptors your liver makes. That's a protein that the liver makes it's like a claw. It goes to the surface of your liver. It reaches into the plasma and grabs anything with ApoB on it and pulls those particles into the liver and they get catabolized. Obviously, if you're clearing ApoB particles, you will reduce the ApoB level in the blood. So what determines whether a liver makes or doesn't make LDL receptors? You want it to make a lot. It's how much cholesterol is in the liver. If you have too much cholesterol in your liver, either because your liver oversynthesizes it or your gut overabsorbs it and sends it to the liver, you now have a cholesterol-rich liver. Too much cholesterol is toxic to any cell. It crystallizes. Too much cholesterol is a cause of fatty liver. You don't want fatty liver. It can destroy your liver over time. If your liver is full of cholesterol, the first thing it does in defense is saying, good God, stop making LDL receptors and stop pulling LDL particles carrying cholesterol into the liver. That's like adding fuel to the fire. So your liver doesn't express LDL receptors anymore. So how can I get your liver to make more LDL receptors? I have to deplete the hepatic cholesterol pool. Stop synthesis statin, bempedoic acid, stop absorption, azetamide. Both or either one of those would deplete a source of cholesterol for the liver. The liver does need cholesterol. It would start expressing more LDL receptors and clearing your ApoB particles. So with that rationale in mind, let me tell you how to diagnose hyperabsorption or hypersynthesis. And let's start with synthesis because that's the easiest. Remember, every cell in your body produces cholesterol, no exception to the rule. And all cells make an eensy-weensy tiny bit of cholesterol that they need to put in their cell membranes for normal cell membrane function. Most cells do nothing else with cholesterol except steroidogenic tissues, adrenal cortex and gonads make reproductive or uh, adrenal cortical hormones. So uh, they actually produce a little more cholesterol than other cells because they need more. No, uh, so no cell is overproducing cholesterol under normal circumstances. All right. So how would I know whether the cells in your body are producing cholesterol or not? I'd have to understand the cholesterol synthetic chain. It's a 36, 37 step 
product A to product B to product C to product D and product 37 is cholesterol. So there's numerous intermediate steps. It starts with either citrate or acetate. One is a ketone body. So, you know, if you're going to go on a ketotic uh, diet, you might have a lot of substrate to produce cholesterol. So that's an afterthought for perhaps a future discussion. So through many, many steps, when you get to step 36, and when you get to like around step 20, there's a bifurcation in the synthesis pathways. You go down two separate chains, but at the end of the road, the chains may emerge and they turn into cholesterol. The one chain was discovered by a guy called Conrad Block. It's called the Block Pathway. The others were discovered by scientists Can Dutch and Russell. It's the Can Dutch Russell Pathway. So all you need to know is what is the sterile number 36 in each chain that through one third or one more intervention becomes cholesterol. They would be called the penultimate sterile molecules because you putz with them, they're going to become cholesterol. Through the block, chain, it's a sterol called desmosterol, D-E-S-M-O-S-T-E-R-O. Through the Cam Dutch russell pathway, it's lathosterol, L-A-T-H-O-S-T-E-R-O-L. Bingo, and they both turn into cholesterol. So if I would like to know, is Simon's body overproducing too much cholesterol? I would measure both desmosterol and lathosterol. I don't know which pathway is predominant in you. Most people have both. But if either desmosterol or lithosterol or both are elevated, I know you're an overproducer of cholesterol. I can't just measure cholesterol because you could be overabsorbing it and have nothing to do with synthesis. So measurements of desmosterol or lithosterol, if elevated, suggest you're a hypersynthesizer. And you would likely be a super responder to a statin or bempedoic acid if your ApoB was high. Now, if you're an oversynthesizer and your ApoB isn't high, who cares? I'm not going to give you an ApoB-lowering drug just based on your... But most of the people with hypersynthesis will have some degree of elevation of ApoB. Because remember, when you're oversynthesizing cholesterol in your liver, your liver will make less LDL receptors. If we inhibit cholesterol synthesis, your liver will start expressing LDL and you clear the ApoB particles. All right, so that's synthesis. That's easy. Those tests are available in specialized laboratories. Now let's get to the tough story, <laughs> my 35-page chapter on absorption. Now, by absorption, we mean cholesterol molecules in your gut have to enter the enterocyte, which is the intestinal cell lining the gut lumen, and the enterocyte has to do something to the cholesterol and then put it inside a chylomicron, which is the lipo, ApoB lipoprotein the intestine makes, and then ship that lipoprotein out with the cholesterol, and it has a circuitous route, but it'll get to the liver and deliver absorbed cholesterol to the liver, and then the liver can deal with it. All right. So what are the absorption steps? The first question is, you, everybody has what is called an absorbable pool of cholesterol in their gut lumen. Uh, so I, I always like to joke, if I was like a little mini skin diver and I could take like a submarine down into your small intestine and I could start interviewing cholesterol molecules and hey, Mr. Cholesterol, hey, Miss Cholesterol, where the hell did you come from? How did you get into this person's small intestine? One might say, he ate me, and I somehow wound up in his small intestine. He swallowed me. His mouth started it. 
And the next one, it would actually be about the next 10 ones I interviewed would say, you know, I was made in one of the organs in the body and a lipoprotein brought me back to the liver and the liver just shot me into the bile, which emptied into the intestine and here the hell I am. So one of the cholesterol molecules would be of exogenous origin, ingest it, and the other would be of endogenous origin, synthesized in the body, got back to the liver. The liver's trying to get rid of it by sending it to the gut on the hopes that it'll be excreted in the stool. But all it did was become part of the now absorbable pool of cholesterol. So the about 80% of the cholesterol molecules that are in our small intestine right now, ready for absorption, came from endogenous sources, came through the liver, the bile, and there they are. The rest were ingested. And that's why it's very, very difficult to overeat cholesterol. It, you just can't overwhelm the pool of absorbable cholesterol by eating it because your liver is dumping way more cholesterol into that batch. So some will get in, some will not. All right, so now you're in the intestine. A little caveat, almost all of the cholesterol you ingest are in the cholesterol storage form. It's called cholesterol ester. It's a cholesterol molecule with a fatty acid attached to it, much too big to be absorbed. But your pancreas will shoot out lipases, which de-esterify the cholesterol into what's called free, unesterified cholesterol. All of the cholesterol that your liver puts in the bile is free cholesterol. So you have to have free cholesterol. If you don't de-esterify ingested cholesterol, and you'd have to have a pretty serious pancreatic disorder for that to happen, you can't absorb cholesterol, ingested cholesterol. So, all right. Now, the cholesterol molecules that are free and floating around, hey, you've eaten some triglycerides. They get hydrolyzed into fatty acids. Uh, there are some phospholipids that mostly came out of your bile, but they're there too. And do they just swim over to the villi in the small intestine and say, hey, I'm here, absorb me? No, they are transported to the microvilli of the small intestine for absorption in little lipid transportation vehicles that are in our intestine. And they're called biliary micelles. And that is why your liver makes bile acids and dumps them in the bile and they come out in the gut and the bile acids round up lipids, free cholesterol, hydrolyzed fatty acids, phospholipids, and all of a sudden you've got, it's like a lipoprotein, but there are no proteins on it. The bile salts are surrounding the lipids. And those little micelles, these spheres of lipids, they invade the microvilli of the small intestine. And that's where various lipid absorption uh, transporters come into play. I've already introduced the Neiman-Pick C1-like transporter. That will recognize any sterols that are in your biliary micelles, which might be the free cholesterol, but maybe you ate a bunch of plants and veggies today, so you ingested phytosterols, which are different type sterols than our cholesterol. They're structurally different, but they're similar enough that the Neiman-Pick will absorb both phytosterols and cholesterol. They're in. Fatty acids get absorbed by a totally different receptor. It's called the CD36. So fatty acid absorption has nothing to do with sterile absorption. So many people confuse. They think there's just one absorptive mechanism for everything, and there's not. All right. So let's forget about the fatty acids for now. Cholesterol and some phytosterols got in. Typically, Neiman-Pick has an, a stronger affinity for cholesterol than it does phytosterols, but it ain't that bright, so they both get in. Humans have no use for phytosterols. We're not plants. 
humans can't synthesize phytosterols, they cannot be used in the body. Above a certain level, they're actually dangerous in the body. So the intestine has a secondary job. Once Neiman Pick has pulled it in, uh, the analogy is Neiman Pick is like the bouncer at a nightclub that you're going to. He's supposed to weed out the undesirables, but there's always a few creeps who get past the first bouncer but now you're in the actual room you're in the anthracite there's a second bouncer and it's called an AT, uh, ABC G5 and G8 transporter it's a sterile efflux transporter if the Neiman pick let in too many damn sterols of any type then uh, the ABC G5 or G8 grabs them and says oh no they kick them right out the door they efflux them back to the gut lumen so it's the backup bouncer so if you're a sterile to really get into the enterocyte before you get into a calomicron you got one pulling you in but you got a sensor evicting you if too many came in if humans have perfect neiman pick function and abc g5 g8 function they will have normal absorption of cholesterol because they work hand in hand to maintain intestinal cholesterol homeostasis. All right, so now you have free cholesterol. Maybe there's still a few phytosterols left over. That ABCG5GA really hates phytosterols, and he throws them out first before he does cholesterol. So there shouldn't be any left, but, you know, not everybody has the most perfect ABCG5GA transporter either. What's the next step? Before it can ever get into a calomicron, it has to be changed from free cholesterol to cholesterol ester. So we need an enzyme to esterify it. Acyl cholesterol acyl transferase, ACAT. So that enzyme has a much higher affinity for cholesterol than phytosterols. So it will esterify a large amount of cholesterol ester. Perfect. That's a very hydrophobic cholesterol. It goes right into the core of the calomicron. It's joined with triglycerides. You wrap them with phospholipids and some free cholesterol. You wrap them externally with ApoB48. Bingo. You've got the chylomicron. It goes into the lymphatics, up out the thoracic duct, systemic circulation, drop off the trigs at the muscle, and then bring the cholesterol to the liver. If there's any phytosterols in the chylomicron, they got into the liver or liver also. And the liver has an ABCG5GA. It'll evict them quickly back into the bile. There's one other way cholesterol gets in. If there's cholesterol in the enterocyte, it doesn't all have to go in a calomicron. That enterocyte can express another sterile efflux transporter called ATP binding cassette transporter A1. That effluxes free cholesterol from the enterocyte into little baby HDL particles in the plasma. So some of the cholesterol that's in your HDL particles came out of the gut. A poor man's signal of hyperabsorption of cholesterol is your HDL cholesterol tends to be on the high side. So look, there's a lot of exceptions to this rule. I've always told clinicians, if you see both high LDL cholesterol and high HDL cholesterol, you should at least be thinking of overabsorption of cholesterol. And if you're not doing the fancy tests, a trial of azetamide might be indicated uh, to lower the LDL cholesterol or it's the associated ApoB. It's just a poor man's marker of hyperabsorption of cholesterol. But what are the real tests? I've taught you desmosterol and lithosterol for synthesis. 
So what sterol should never be in your bloodstream? Phytosterols. You're not a plant. You can't synthesize phytosterols. If you have phytosterols floating in your plasma lipoproteins, you have absorbed them. And if you are absorbing phytosterols, those receptors in your intestine are broken because they are geared to never absorb phytosterols. So we look at phytosterol concentrations in the blood. And again, beyond a certain threshold, they are strong indicators that you're a hyperabsorber of cholesterol. And so that's, we measure then the phytosterols that are most common. And there are over 30 to 35 phytosterols, but the two that are usually measured are cytosterol, S-I-T-O-sterol, and campesterol, C-A-M-P-E-S-T-E-R-O-L. So I look at those. The labs that are doing them include a panel that gives you the phytosterols for absorption, and they give you those two penultimate synthetic sterols. And by looking at the two, you have a good handle on hyperabsorption, hypersynthesis, or both. And that, if you have to lower ApoB, instead of guessing what drug to go on first, hey, it's synthesizer, a statin should work very well. Those are the people who hyper-respond to statins. If you're not a synthesizer, you would probably have a hypo-response to a statin. Vice versa, if you're a hyperabsorber, you get an exaggerated response to exetamide. If you're a hypoabsorber, you get a hypo response to exetamide. So they're very good markers to know ahead of time. And it, look, if you see you got both defects, a low-dose statin plus azetamide, even intermittent azetamide might be your best way of conquering ApoB in that patient. So folks, the good news is... Uh, these two tests are now available direct to consumer uh, by a, at least in the United States, probably not in other countries. So you contact this company, they're right online. I think it's called Empowered DX. I'll, I'll send you the link, Simon. Uh, they send you a little uh, card, you prick your finger, you get one drop of blood, you put it on there, you mail it back to them. The cost is $99, but you get those four very valuable sterile markers. And it can help you make a therapeutic decision. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's the best explanation I've ever heard about trying to uh, determine. I would hope so. After writing <laughs> two book chapters, yeah, no, it's it's super clear in terms of trying to get to the bottom as to what is the cause of the elevated ApoB. Is it a hyperabsorption, or is it a hypersynthesis, or a combination of? Um, and I want to come back to just. Masterol in our next discussion when we talk about statins, because I know that there is uh, yes, some talk. Because remember, your brain is synthesizing right. cholesterol too, and that's probably the one organ you do not want to oversuppress mm -hmm. the synthesis of cholesterol. So we will get to that in due time, right? Uh, for sure. On on phytosterols, Tom, and you may have sort of alluded to this, but. There may be some people that are taking phytosterols um, as a way to lower their cholesterol levels. You know, that's that's what they've they've heard. Is that because those phytosterols sort of compete with the cholesterol for absorption through the um, the Neiman Pick C one like one receptor? That's exactly what happens. So if you drown yourself with supplemental phytosterols, the biliary micelles they invade the biliary micelles and there's not much room for the cholesterol to get in there. But you have to use a lot of them. Now, vegans, uh, people, pure vegetarians, typically eat about 
five to 600 milligrams of phytosterols per day. The people who buy these supplements take 2,000 milligrams a day of these phytosterol supplements. So I did whisper before, humans should never have phytosterols in their blood. A little bit would indicate overabsorption. Once they exceed a certain threshold, there are pathologies related to excess phytosterols. There's a disease called phytosterolemia, which has very high levels. So who would I tell under no circumstances ever take a phytosterol? First of all, it, phytosterols are going to get in excess when cholesterol gets in excess, somebody with hyperabsorption of sterols. So if I knew you were a hyperabsorber of sterols, almost always the genetic causes for that is loss of function of the gene that controls ABCG5 or GA. If they're not working, cholesterol gets in and stays in, phytosterols get in and stay in. So if I knew you had that defect, why in the world would I tell you to take extra molecules that could potentially be toxic? So nobody with hyperabsorption of cholesterol should ever use phytosterols. You know, I used to see in the United States, they advertised the hell out of cytosterol because somebody made up the belief that it shrinks prostates in old men. Now, look, phytosterols are normally not absorbed. So there's no way in most men it could ever shrink your prostate because it can't be absorbed. But if you're a hyperabsorber of sterols, it could be absorbed. I don't believe it does anything to your prostate, but it could cause atherosclerosis or other diseases related to phytosterols. So before you want to try phytosterols, check your absorption status. And if it's high, don't use them. But look, if you don't have high absorption, you don't need a phytosterol sub because blocking cholesterol absorption is not going to lower your ApoB. You'd have to attack synthesis in that person. So uh, phytosterols are one of the, I'll call it a useless supplement, but in some people could be dangerous. So under normal circumstances, phytosterols will compete with cholesterol for absorption through that that name and peak C1 like one, but but right. the body There's will just not enough cholesterol in the biliary in my cells. Right? But then the body under normal circumstances should kick them straight back out through the G5 G8, whereas someone who's a hyperabsorber they're entering circulation, which is where they should not. Yeah, be. but virtually all the hyperabsorbers have defects in G5 G8. Mm. Okay. They don't, there's no gain of function of neiman pick c one like one. It's mm -hmm. loss of function in G5G8. Clear something else up for me here because it's, it's related to this, but it does also um, sort of uh, move us into the territory of our next discussion. But you mentioned uh, vegans. So vegans are not consuming dietary cholesterol, but based on everything that we've spoken about um, so far – they would still have cholesterol in their small intestine that's coming from the liver through the bile. So a drug like azetamibe could still be beneficial in a vegan. Great question. And there are studies where they actually enrolled vegans and they gave them azetamibe and it blocked cholesterol absorption and lowered LDL cholesterol. So those studies exist. And that proves the point. One last thing, because I like to give the supplement people a little good news. There's one final phase to uh, cholesterol absorption. So you have this pool of free cholesterol in your gut that's available for absorption. Unless your gut microbes convert cholesterol, they saturate it. And if you take out the double bond at carbon-5 and cholesterol, it's the only double bond in the molecule, 
you change it into a saturated sterol, and they are called stanols. Stanols virtually cannot be absorbed. The Neiman pick protein will let almost no stanols get through. So if your gut microbes do you a favor and convert some of that free cholesterol to, there's two isomers, cholesterol and the uh, alpha, uh, the beta isomer is called coprostanol. They can't be absorbed. They will be excreted fecally. So your intestinal microbes have a role in the cholesterol absorption also. And look, I think evolution knew that. And that's one of the reasons why they had the liver send free cholesterol back to the gut on the hopes that the microbes would change it into cholesterol and it would no longer be available for absorption. There, the, especially the microbe species that does that are lactobacilli. And there are yogurts made with lactobacilli that a person can use and can actually block cholesterol absorption by 15 to 20%, you know, which, so it might be worth a trial for the people who like to try something non-pharmacological to begin with. It's nowhere, it's not a competitor for azetamide, but you want to try it first, go ahead. People explain fiber too, but fiber blocks such a little amount of cholesterol absorption. It's not a real player. Fiber may have super benefits for the human body, but blocking cholesterol absorption, especially if you have high ApoB is, not going to help you. So the stanols don't are not absorbed through the Neiman Pick C1 like one. But are there any stanol supplements? Would a stanol supplement still compete with the cholesterol? Yep. So this was recognized in Finland decades ago. And they said, if we can just take cytosterol, a phytosterol, and commercially saturate it, take out that double bond, we would produce cytostanol. It's the stanol version of cytosterol. And they esterified it with a fatty acid to make it palatable and swallowable. And they put it in a product. And that product in the United States is called Benecol, B-E-N-E-C-O-L. It's cytostanol. Perhaps it has other names elsewhere. And it also is worth a trial. You can get like a 5-10% lowering of LDL cholesterol, ApoB with it. Look, it's a little bit of a pain. It comes as a spread. You have to put it on bread, and you probably shouldn't be eating a lot of bread to begin with anyway. But there, it also comes as chews. So that's, a, and you got to take it, you know, two, three times a day. But it is a non pharmacological way of blocking cholesterol absorption. Okay. So cytostanol, a, a better option than a phytosterol supplement. Yeah, you don't want to use phytosterols. So the phytostanol, you can't hurt yourself because they can't be absorbed. Uh, and they do compete with cholesterol for entry into the biliary micelle also. So they could knock cholesterol out. And then the stanol can't be absorbed and there's fewer cholesterol molecules that can be absorbed. Okay, let's finish here with secondary prevention because the, the kind of avatars that I've given you so far were, were more of a, a primary prevention type of scenario. And I've got this, this kind of avatar. It's loosely based off some emails and questions that I've had from people in the community, but no, no sort of single person here. Um, so let's, let's say we're, we're taking uh, a man or a woman, they're 55 years old and they have, they have a history of cardiovascular disease. They had a heart attack a decade or two ago and they didn't need surgery. There was a, a stent wasn't needed and they, they went on uh, some some drugs, uh, an antihypertensive. Um, they were taking some lipid lowering medications, and then they decided to 
to also start changing their lifestyle, a very determined person, and they wanted to come off of their medications. And so they started exercising, they started eating well, and they were able to get their blood pressure under control. They lost some weight. They got their blood pressure back to um, a healthy uh, level within the reference range without taking the uh, beta blockers or whatever they were taking. And they were also able to get their LDL cholesterol down to 70 or 80 milligrams per deciliter. And this person is, and that, that's without drugs. And this person is interested in a couple of que questions here. Um, what diagnostics should they be thinking about in order to determine whether their current LDL cholesterol level is safe? Um, and do they need to be targeting a level significantly lower than 70 milligrams per deciliter given their history of cardiovascular disease? Yeah, well, look, secondary prevention. You said they've had a heart attack early in life. You, you said they maybe didn't have to have a stent or a bypass, but they had a heart attack. That immediately puts them into the high-risk category, uh, even a, depending on how you define it, a very high-risk category. Normally, very high-risk would be a heart attack, plus you've got coexisting diabetes, renal dysfunction, uh, severe hypertensive cardiovascular disease. So let's say the person you have is just they've had a heart attack, so they're high-risk. So we have an ApoB or an LDL cholesterol goals that have been defined for them in the high-risk category. And it's the uh, an ApoB really under 60, and it's an LDL cholesterol nowadays of under 55 milligrams per deciliter. So if their LDLC was 70 on whatever they're taking, I would not let them stop the drug. If their LDL cholesterol through whatever else they're doing in life and their ApoB is below those stricter goals, yeah, I'd and, you know, obviously they had no clinical events over the time period or so. I don't think there's anything you could do <laughs> other than, hey, your lipids, your blood pressure, you have no insulin resistance. They're all under control. Maybe you've been taking an aspirin ever since you have a heart attack, and we'd probably keep you on that. Uh, if you want to, you're at goal now, I would say, okay, you want to try and stop your lipid medication, go ahead. But I would not let them go more than six to eight weeks before I'd repeat those lipid things and see, did they escalate off of the therapy? And if they did, then you go right back on the drugs. If for whatever reason they didn't, then uh, you could wait a little longer and just closely watch these things. Uh, you know, I guess you, uh, a CAC wouldn't help you. You would see calcified plaque in them, and that's good. What you wouldn't see is the non-calcified plaque. So you'd almost demand that you got to get a CT angiogram to look for soft plaque. And if I saw that, I wouldn't let them come off of lipid modulating drugs. I think that's too risky. So I, I think stress testing is kind of useless <clears throat> because stress testing just sort of checks the lumen of your artery. And if your pathology is on the wall of the artery, you can pass a stress test. You could get a nuclear stress test, which might show perfusion defects in your arteries due to temporary uh, atherosclerotic-induced narrowing of your arteries while you're on the treadmill. So if you wanted a stress test, make it a nuclear one. Very expensive, and there's a lot of radiation with nuclear stress tests. So I don't know. I, 
I'd really look at their April B. If it's been spectacular, okay, you can let's stop it for a while, but not long, six, eight weeks at longest. Remember, when you come off these lipid medicines, within two weeks, if you're going to escalate, it goes right up. These drugs work quickly and they wear off quickly. A PCSK9 inhibitor, you might have to worry, wait about three weeks, four weeks before it's, you wouldn't see any more effect from it. The statins and azetamide quicker. And then going back, circling back to what we were speaking about earlier, though, and I'm thinking of the Fourier uh, OLE or OLE study that recently came out. Um, they, you do get a, a further risk reduction, though, going down from 70 down to 20 milligrams per deciliter, for example, without any significant increase in adverse effects. Yeah, I mean, if you look at all the data, cholesterol trialists, graphs and everything, it's a straight line. You know, as you get to the lower end, the slope of the line is, you know, smaller increments than the drop from when you're astronomical. But so uh, would the same thing happen as you start going up the slope of that line again? Yeah, you'd be at risk for that. But remember, it's a slow process, atherogenesis. So, uh, you know, you probably can get away with it for a while. You mentioned before sort of the timing of blood tests or time between blood tests. For for the ordinary person, so LP little A, you said that's a that's a once off, um, yeah. and then we'll keep. And you don't have to fast for that. There's no preparation for yeah. LP little A. And we'll keep an eye on on future studies that are underway now, looking at therapeutics to target LP little A for people that have elevated levels. Um, but for yeah. By the way, one word about that because there's millions of people praying for this drug. But the first drug that they're studying. The only people they enrolled in the trial were you had to have had a heart attack and you had to have an astronomical LP little a level. So, of course, if you got a drug and you're spending billions of dollars, you take the nightmares because if your drug doesn't work in the nightmares, it sure as heck is not going to work in people with less trivial, more trivial risk. So the real question that we're all pondering is suppose that's a very successful trial this drug lowers LP little a by over 80% and it reduces heart attacks. It doesn't do anything to ApoB. So it proved lowering LP little a works and there was no downside to the drug safety signals. The FDA will absolutely give it an approval to lower LP little a in people who've had heart attacks and have nightmare LP little a levels. Will they give it a primary prevention indication? Uh, my guess is no they would want you to go and do a primary prevention trial. Well, a primary prevention trial is 10 times more expensive than a secondary because you have to enroll way more people to get the number of events that are necessary to adjudicate your hypothesis. So there's worries on that. If they do not give it a primary prevention indication, the only people who are going to use that drug in primary prevention are super wealthy people who can go off label and pay for the drug. It will not be a cheap drug when it comes on the market, as you can imagine. So that's, I hate to put a little, uh-oh, for the LP little a story. No, that's worth people being aware of. What about ApoB and triglycerides, the other two main tests outside of LP little a that we spoke about? How frequently would you like people to perform blood tests to, to sort of see where those levels are at? Well, ApoB, let's say you're perfect on it. I mean, I would do it if you're an adult every year, if you're younger, 
Some people would say every five years is plenty enough to do it. I think once you get up into the 30s or 40s, uh, yearly lipid profile is always wise for ApoB. Just so, again, the sooner you identify it, the sooner you can watch it more closely and treat it if necessary. With triglycerides, you know, unless we have identified you as a triglyceride problem, once a year is probably fine with triglycerides too. I mean, if in the middle of the year you suddenly break out with type 2 diabetes, but that doesn't just happen like that. There would be signals that you're a diabetic if you're under regular medical care and being screened. So uh, uh, now once you have high triglycerides, here's an interesting part of the story. Okay, triglycerides may or may not have elevated atherosclerotic risk. Above 500, you have pancreatitis risk. But below 500, do you or are the triglycerides put you at risk for atherosclerosis or not? And it may or it may not, believe it or not. And it all depends, is, is the triglycerides associated with high ApoB? If so, you're in trouble. If you have an elevation of triglycerides and your ApoB is normal, you have no very little cardiovascular risk. And believe it or not, and this astounds people, pull every guideline in the world, there is no specific triglyceride goal of therapy. All of the guideline statements say, if a person has high triglycerides, normalize non-HDL cholesterol, which is the poor man's surrogate of ApoB. And then in this next sentence, they say, or you could just measure ApoB. The best way to know whether a triglyceride is associated with atherosclerotic risk is look at ApoB, and if you can't get that, look at non-HDL cholesterol. So, uh, but triglycerides per se is just like a little warning system, but therapy is attack ApoB. And there's a simple reason. In some people, as Triggs goes up, it delays the clearance of your ApoB particles, and therefore ApoB goes through the roof. As you treat trigs in those people, the you shorten the plasma residence time of mostly their LDL particles and ApoB goes down. If the therapy is all about ApoB, and that's what we're really trying to to lower, um, and and also keeping in mind the twenty percent of the population where there is discordance between LDL cholesterol and ApoB, why? do most of the standard blood tests still measure LDL cholesterol and not, not ApoB? Why do you have to ask for it? There's a tragic answer to that. If I could control the guidelines and I say, I'm the king of the world right now, tomorrow every lipid guideline will say, doctors, you must get ApoB to gold in every person under your care. Citizens, make sure your doctors get ApoB to control. The overwhelming majority of practicing clinicians in the world have no clue what ApoB is. They don't know what the metrics are for it. They don't know what the levels are for it. They wouldn't know how to treat it. So it would cause mass confusion in the lipid world. The um, brainiacs of the world say, wait a minute, we've been preaching to people for the last 50 years. You got to lower cholesterol. You really got to lower the bad cholesterol, LDL cholesterol. Now we're going to tell them, forget that and just lower ApoB. We got into a lot of trouble with changing opinions on COVID over the last few years. Imagine if we came out tomorrow and say, ignore your cholesterol measurements, just get ApoB. So it's not going to, it would require massive educational efforts that are just not going to happen. And until a guideline says to do it, no third party payer is going to pay for it. 
So there's so many stumbling blocks. I get that question on Twitter. Some guy today, Twitter, well, wait a minute. Why can't we just go in and demand that the guidelines change this? Yeah. I said, I've been trying for 30 years and nobody's listening to me. Another person tweeted me today. I went to my doctor and demanded an APOB and he said, no. Uh, and how, what did you do? Read it on the internet? And he goes, yeah. And Tom Dayspring said it. And of course, the doctor, who the hell's Tom Dayspring? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. It's a lost cause. I think the astute people, the doctors will know it. I hope if you're a patient who cares about your health, you have to be your own advocate. You have to do your own studying to variable degrees on all diseases, but certainly atherosclerotic disease, vascular disease, chronic brain disease, cancer. You better know something about those. And cancer is tough to prevent, but these vascular diseases, metabolic diseases are so easy to prevent, but you got to know it and teach your doctors. What? What advice would you give to someone who perhaps does present to their doctor and they say, look, I'd like to to get ApoB tested and I'd like to get LP little a tested on top of the standard lipid panel and their doctor, for whatever reason, pushes back. Maybe they're, they think these are unnecessary or they're just not familiar with them. What, what would you say as a patient to the doctor? If a patient really asked me that, I'd maybe give them some supportive literature guidelines from recognized organizations, not Tom Dayspring's Twitter feed, and see if your doctor would at least look at what the NLA is saying or the European Atherosclerosis Society uh, is saying. And if your doctor looks at them and says, I don't believe it, uh, it's sad, but you should seek another doctor. That's mm-hmm. uh, what can I tell you? Uh, look, it's your life. And atherosclerosis is is by far the number one cause of death. Nothing else is even close. So, uh, you know, you got to be your own advocate. You better know uh, something about your heart risk. And if your doctor won't listen, and look, I'm a doctor. <laughs> I know some of my brethren have crazy egos and they won't accept. But I think more modern doctors are starting to understand there's no possible way I know everything. So what you say, I never heard of, but let me do at least some superficial reading. A doctor could Google ApoB in a second and get a lot of good ideas. So, uh, sooner or later, you, you have to think who's giving me health care. And I joke that, and maybe it's not a joke, if you have a doctor who doesn't know much contemporary knowledge about the number one cause of death, what the hell other things are you trusting him on? Yeah, that's a very important message. Uh, Tom, this has been fantastic again. Thank you so much for your time. Was there anything that you wanted to cover with regards to assessing risk of, of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease that perhaps we missed or, or didn't cover? Oh, I'm sure there is, and I'll think of it as soon as I walk out of the room here, and you will too, and you'll email me tomorrow. (laughs) As you did starting today, you cleaned up a few things we didn't get to in episode one. Uh, We do have one more episode left, so we'll go over it. But uh, look, my hope is through these wonderful podcasts I'm doing with you, and I love your interviewing style. I think you're getting a lot of pearls out of me, and you have insight to the disease, so you just... You're really asking good questions here that matter. Uh, these, this should be a stimulus for what I'm saying to do to people. Go out and start reading this stuff. There are ex. You could even follow me on Twitter. Half of the stuff I tweet is going to be above your head, but a lot is basic stuff. And I, I'm a uh, thought leader that actually interacts with patients on Twitter if they ask decent, uh, polite, 
questions and I gather you're interested in your health, I'll point you in the right direction uh, with layman literature or if you're a healthcare clinician. So there's just so much better ways to self-educate ourselves nowadays. Uh, look, I've come down with some other diseases in my life, that, you know, and other members of my family, or I get questions, you know, from your buddies. You're a doctor. Well, I got, I, you know, you got to go read about it. I, ask me lipid questions. Don't ask so you, we all have to be our own advocates. But the internet is good and bad. And it is perhaps tough for somebody to know who's good or bad. I think also if you decide to follow pr practitioner X, Y, or Z, we all have curriculum vitaes and uh, that might give you a clue on who we are. Uh, you, you know, and if you're half of the people offering advice on the internet are not even licensed healthcare practitioners for God's sakes. And they certainly have had no serious medical training or published anything in the, whatever field of expertise they claim to have. So uh, it is tough for a layman to check people out. I don't know. You know, I, I, my brag that, Hey, look, if a guy like Simon here wants to interview my, on my podcast, I've probably done something correct in my life. Cause I, you don't go picking people out of the phone book on who I'm going to interview or not. So I'm privileged to join the crowd that have sat down with you. And I've had a few other prestigious people interview me in my day and got several book chapters I can send you that I don't think the average doc could write. No, you, I mean, you, you, you know this at such a deep level, but you have an incredible ability to communicate it to the, to the layperson, and I couldn't agree with you more that if you're someone who values your health, you're thinking about improving your health span and longevity, you really need to study atherosclerosis and be your own advocate. And, um, you know, I'm just super grateful for, for you sharing all that you do, and I know that the listeners will be too. So um, thanks again, Tom. Really, really appreciated today's discussion, and I look forward to continuing this in our next one where we focus on interventions to optimize our lipids and, and lower our, our risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Can't wait. There we go, friends. Thank you for showing up and the effort you're making to take better control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again next week for another episode.